Hello, valued listener, and welcome to Pedestals Series 1, Kiss Me Hardy, Episode 1. Um, Lord Lord Nelson. Nelson. Yeah, Lord Lord Nelson. Nelson. He was a very small man, diminutive little creature. Short ass of a high podium. Um, Yeah, Grandpa is always going on about it. Um, Don't know, you've got short man Nelson complex. Was he missing an arm? Also, did he get an arrow in his eye in the battle? I seem to remember him losing an eye. And he lost an eye. An anti-establishment figure. Was it in the 1800s? He's on top of a column in Trafalgar Square. I mean, was this the Battle of Waterloo, I think? Fought the French. We won, right? Big naval victory, was it? I mean, was he fighting Napoleon? I think it was fighting Napoleon. The main thing I know about Trafalgar is it's part of the shipping forecast, so it must be in the English Channel. The outrageous ongoing affair with Lady Hamilton. My friend's beautiful standard poodle was actually called Nelson. Also, did he have a famous horse with a funny name? Trafalgar? Our story begins on the 20th of October 1968 in Mexico City. The Olympics of 1968 were taking place. It was about two weeks in. It was a hot summer. Everything had been going pretty much to plan. On the 20th of October, a young man, an American, six foot four, not particularly athletic looking necessarily, walks up to take part in the high jump. His name was Dick Fosbury. And uh, despite his unassuming appearance, he was about to change the history of his sport. Up until that point, the high jump had had many techniques. The um, standing jump it started as. um, There was a a scissor kick, a straddle jump, um, the western roll. I don't know if there was an eastern roll. but... But Dick Fosbury walks out and he sets the new Olympic world record. And uh, it takes gold. And he jumps 2 metres 24. Now, if you watch the high jump nowadays, well, you wouldn't be very surprised, really, at what Dick Fosbury did, because what Dick Fosbury did has become to be known as the Fosbury flop. And that is the technique that really all high jumpers use nowadays. It's a sort of a backwards roll, where you almost look like you're kind of falling over um, over the pole. And... It involves a lot of physics, um, and it, but it's basically a completely, in you know, when, when Dick Fosbury did it, a completely new way of approaching the problem, which is getting over a high pole. And he had worked out some maths that meant that there was a better way to do it than the way everyone else had been doing it. Now, of course, our story doesn't really begin there at all, but it's a breadcrumb that will come back and help us later. It's a concept which, um, in Dick Fosbury's life and in the, the history of the high jump, uh, changed that sport. Uh, but within our story, will well, it will decide the outcome of a battle, and uh, in a broader sense, it will change the way that history will unfold for the next 150 years. So, in the centre of London, in Trafalgar Square, is a column. Um, this column is about 170 feet tall, and at the top of that column is a statue, a statue of a man called Horatio Nelson. And the square is named for the battle in which he died, not to completely ruin the story. In, I suppose, a tidbit which will, I think, become relevant for how we view this, Um, in 2006, Nelson's column was refurbished at a cost of nearly half a million pounds. 
at which time it was surveyed and it was found to actually be 14 feet and 6 inches shorter than was previously supposed. And Nelson's column isn't the only record we have, the only monument we keep to Horatio Nelson. We have countless streets named after Nelson, Trafalgar, the Victory, his flagship, pubs around the country named after him. We have the HMS Victory still floating in Portsmouth Harbour. So Horatio Nelson looms large over the British historical imaginary. And in this podcast, I want to look at why, and perhaps to what extent that memory is a positive one, what we can learn from it, why we might want to remember it, or indeed I might examine why we might not. But ultimately, I want to give you a really good idea of what this guy did to be at the top of a 170-foot column at the centre of London. And there's a lot of this story to tell, so in this first episode I'm really just going to focus on what was going on in Europe at the time and the broader geopolitical context and a little bit of context of Nelson's life up until 1805, which is when our story really begins. There was a a poem uh, by uh, Rosemary and Stephen Vincent Bennett, um, and it includes the phrase, There was a time before our time, it will not come again when the best ships still were wooden ships, but the men were iron men. And this has been kind of paraphrased uh, into the saying, when boats were made of wood, men were made of steel. And that's talking about the time that that Nelson was was active and was making his career, roughly the era sort of 1750 to, to 1850, what we call the golden age of sail. And I think we have come to mythologize and romanticize this era and particularly the figure of Lord Nelson um, in Britain to an incredible extent. He's really all around us. In fact, I'm recording this in Vancouver in Canada. Just probably a quarter of a mile away there is a, a Trafalgar Street. There's this enduring idea about this period that people were somehow different. And we have this about all sorts of historical periods, perhaps the past generally, but particularly about this this age of sail, when boats were made of wood, men were made of steel, that people were somehow different, they were, they were stronger, they were nobler, which I think we can see is, at heart is a silly idea, really, isn't it? You know, a lot of people might, might muse, how did they do it? Uh, but I think, to be honest, that can be quite easily answered if we look at the carrots and the sticks. Incentives that worked on these people I think we can work it out, uh, undoubtedly, and this is definitely you know, why I'm making a podcast about it. It was an un- incredible, interesting era with um, unusual moments in the human experience. But I think rather than asking how did they do it, I think that the more interesting question we can ask is what was it like? You know, what was, what was going on and what was it actually like experientially different from our modern lives? Because it's not that long ago. We're talking about the relatively recent Uh, history. In fact, history as it approaches the beginning of what we might call the modern age. So what was it like? (laughs) That hopefully is a question that we'll try to answer to some extent over the next few episodes. But the first thing that I really want to, to talk about is its role in the national myth, in our national consciousness. You know, what is the general understanding of Nelson and Trafalgar? I've always been really drawn to this period, so perhaps I'm speaking for myself when I say we romanticise it. Um, ever since I saw the 2003 film Master and Commander, me and my friend Zach, we went with his dad. I can still remember it, so obviously it must have been um, formative. I thought it was the greatest thing. I thought it was a fantastic film, and I was bewildered to find quite recently that it was considered a bit of a flop, that 
people didn't necessarily get on with that that well. Warner Brothers recently announced a Nelson biopic called Love and Glory uh, in 2013, but that was shelved. And it's interesting, there doesn't seem to be that much of an appetite, perhaps, for for this period in popular media. I think Master and Commander was meant to be the, the start of a franchise of, of movies, and I think it was unfortunate enough to come just when superhero movies became the new action thing. We didn't want to watch cannons and, and sailing ships and funny hats and so forth. But anyway, I, uh, th- th- this is, I think, um, a fascinating period and one that, in particularly in recent cultural history, has kind of been a little underrepresented or has faded out a little. You know, we've got Pirates of the Caribbean and so forth, which is about the period before this, really, and is also about zombie pirates, so isn't exactly um, historical stuff. But what place does this take in our national understanding? Because I think there is a kind of pervading idea of it in our consciousness is our collective consciousness anyway i realize if i try to answer that question on my own then i just answer what what my myth of it is and as i've already probably made clear well i'm potentially a bit of a nerd about it so my myth is going to be different to other people's so i did something that's hopefully going to be a recurring feature on this podcast i conducted a bit of a a survey of friends and and colleagues and relatives um, with an open call out to tell me what their understanding of the events were and who nelson was and what associations they had with it. Now, obviously, this has its flaws. I'm sure I have a bubble that can't possibly be representative of the whole British public. I'd also like to be clear that I, I say this all with, with the utmost respect for all of these people, that, that anything, you know, reflect on, on their feedback is not at all to say it's, it's bad. They didn't know every detail of what happened at Trafalgar and who Nelson was and his whole biography. Because actually, I think their mistakes and the misunderstandings or the, 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 the gaps in knowledge are incredibly illuminating. And that it's those things that maybe form, to some extent, national myth. So, um, so thank you to everybody. And um, anything which sounds like I'm being mean, I promise I'm not. The general answer I got to my inquiry was that people know the names of Nelson and Trafalgar. But other than one or two history buffs, people tended not to know what had actually happened. You know, what happened specifically at Trafalgar and what Nelson is famous for. Indeed, what what he had done to warrant being at the top of a 170-foot-tall pillar at the centre of what, at the time, was the centre of the the strongest empire on Earth. And they decided to put this guy at the top of a pillar. So he's got to be significant. But most people just kind of knew, well, he's significant, but I don't know. One friend surmised, interestingly, that it, that it was a naval action because Nelson is an admiral, uh, so top marks to, to him. He worked it out. There was a strong association with Napoleon, which is correct. You know, it was he was fighting during the Napoleonic Wars. There was a general sense that, that the British beat the French at Trafalgar. However, there were some interesting mistaken assumptions too. One of the main ones was that the battle took place in the English Channel. Now, so many of our, you know, our defensive, decisive engagements have you know, in the channel with the Armada, with the Spanish Armada, that is, the Luftwaffe during the um, the Battle of Britain. And a lot of other people also assumed that it was kind of next door to Waterloo, that it was, it had happened in the, in the English Channel and that it combined with Waterloo what kind of did for Napoleon. And both of those things are just massively wrong. Trafalgar is, well, Cape Trafalgar is a bit of Spain that juts off the kind of south-southwest corner and it was 10 years before Waterloo. A common theme 
was that Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square puts paid to the fact that the physical landscape of culture we surround ourselves with, the, the sculptures we have in our, well, the statues rather we have in our, in our cities really does affect our outlook. A common theme was that Nelson's column is in Trafalgar Square and that's why, that's where people have heard of him. There was some personal knowledge of Nelson, a lot of knowledge about him losing an eye, that he was short, that he died during the battle or he died, he died at Trafalgar. Many answers also credited Nelson with, with more than he perhaps deserves. That's not to cast any aspersions on the memory of Nelson. We'll, you know, we'll go into it. But many said that he had defeated Napoleon. Uh, one said he put Napoleon on an island with poisoned wallpaper, which is a linked story, but is a slightly separate one, if you don't know it. Kind of, sort of true, maybe. But Nelson didn't do that. These can be more closely associated with Wellington, Arthur Wellesley, who becomes the Duke of Wellington, and he won at Waterloo. Um, and we're not going to talk about him. But straight away, actually, I'd, I'd want to just put it out there that it's interesting that Wellington won the Battle of Waterloo, which, as ABBA put it, was the battle that won the war, and is arguably a much more significant event. Well, I'm sure some military historians would take me to task on that, but it is more directly tied to the end of Napoleon's power in Europe. And of course, we have a Waterloo station, so the event gets credit. But we don't have a Wellington Square. Well, we probably do have a Wellington Square somewhere, but it isn't so central. He isn't at the top of a of a 170-foot column. But we do have a Nelson's column. We do have a Trafalgar Square. And that Nelson enjoys, I think, a far greater fame, presence just in our, in our national consciousness than Wellington does. And that's going to be something that's really interesting to, to get into. Why? Um, some of the most interesting results of this survey was the way that we tangle up historical myths. Several participants had Nelson down as a small, angry man, which is a tangle with Napoleon, who was sort of his, his adversary. And, you know, you hear about people with a Napoleon complex, and that in itself is a myth. Napoleon wasn't particularly short. Nelson was quite short. All accounts say he wasn't angry. One friend had him shot in the eye with an arrow, a la... Harold at the Battle of Hastings. One friend had the novel idea that we had beaten Nelson, who was a Frenchman, in battle, and we built a column, presumably to rub it in his face. That might seem like a, like a sort of humorous mix-up, but I think it's really significant. I think it shows that there's an intrinsic flaw in building statues to people that we might pass every single day under the impression we beat him in a battle. You know, that's a, just a complete 180-degree turn, isn't it? Whoever built that statue can't have can't have got further from their aim if that's the takeaway that some people have so if nothing else i think that validates the idea of what this podcast is doing but what history teachers do all the time and what you're doing by by listening to this is that we need to have a deeper understanding of things if we're going to have a, a big statue of them that lives in our public space now as far as the actual events go one friend made an interesting throwaway comment that maybe it shows you know no, nobody knows no, I don't know what happened, so maybe history needs to be taught better, doesn't it? And lots of people say that, um, just as, a, as an offhand comment anyway. And I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily true. I don't know if the, it's a failing of history teaching at school, because choosing a history curriculum must just be absolutely impossible. It must be the worst thing in the world when you're trying to pick what deserves a place. You know, it was, all, it was, it was full when I went to school. I assume that my friend's history curriculum was full, that we didn't just have any, any classes just sitting there and chatting about something else. And history keeps on getting created all the time. God knows this year is going to be pretty difficult uh, to fit into, into the curriculum. So what it really raises a valid question of is 
well, should history be taught better? No, I don't think it should, because we couldn't possibly learn everything. So I, I don't think it. I don't think it is at all a bad reflection on our on our, our history teacher community. I just think it's an interesting reflection on what it is that we prioritise, what we decide is important that people should know, and what it isn't important that we should know. Now, actual events aside, the the deeper side of the survey was to get a sense of people's associations of what Trafalgar and Nelson meant to them as far as their national myth was concerned, if they have one. And I know I've been throwing that term around quite a lot, the idea of a national myth, which is probably problematic. And I'm sure lots of you are saying, well, actually, I don't think nationhood is important at all. Fair enough. That's your own bag. I suppose I'm using national myth as a shorthand for the ideas that we inevitably, whether or not we want to be a part of a nation, end up with. Uh, sort of ingrained into our psyche that we all carry around with us and that we kind of share as a shared consciousness and that for some of us actually do form a really important central part of our our identity of Britishness. The broad consensus was what that meant, you know, what Nelson meant and what Trafalgar meant, um, is that he's a national saviour. That's kind of the bottom line, is that he is associated with a moment where, you know, we were in great peril and he came to the rescue and he saved the day. He's associated with some abstract qualities as well, with duty, uh, the idea of laying down your life for your country. From some of the slightly more historically informed participants, there was a a sense of uh, Nelson personally as a representative of a kind of anti-establishment, uh, rakish libertine. And I think even that is is tied in with a far more pervasive British idea, which is the sense of we go our own way, that we are a, a nation who cut our own course and... We don't want to be told what to do by by anybody else. And for those people who knew a little bit more about Nelson's personal life, which we'll, we'll touch on, there's definitely a sense that he's a kind of anti-establishment, thumbing his nose at the powers that be sort of figure. One friend associated it with the UK leaving the EU, which I think is pretty inevitable, to be honest, in, in the time that we live in. In his own words, you know, he's, he's not, I suppose he's not putting his own opinion out there, but, but in his own words, he said, um, quote, a kind of, we don't want to be told what to do by Europeans. Nelson saved us from having to do so, end quote. Which, you know, I suppose is, is to some extent correct if he stopped Napoleon conquering Great Britain, which we'll see whether or not that's true. Um, for my own impression, I think it plays a lot into the, the British underdog self-image. For me, if I hear Nelson, I think of historically pervasive idea that Britain is the, the plucky underdog that faces off against the big continental brute and uh, wins through, through, you know, native wit and adhering strictly to duty. There's also, there's a kind of interesting, I suppose, related to that, a really weird kind of double think that we have that I'm capable of related to that idea of the British underdog. Because the, the golden age of sale, 1750 to 1850, also happens, well, not doesn't happen to, you know, is very much linked to the absolute height of the British Empire, in which the British Empire becomes an empire on which the sun never sets, covering sort of a quarter of the globe and a third of the world's population and, and is an incredibly powerful national entity, yet somehow we're able to kind of to, to compromise that with an idea of being an underdog. And I think that's that shouldn't be taken as a kind of, oh, well, a good reason to, to ignore that instinct. I think it's really weird that we're, ca- we're capable of of sustaining that as a, as a national myth. I think it seems appropriate that Nelson has been placed 50 metres off the ground. He's up Nelson's column, 50 metres away from us. And my dad pointed out, you, you can't really see him at all from where you are. And actually, when we think of Nelson's column, we, it's not the statue of Nelson on top of the column. It's Nelson's column. It's just the big granite or limestone or whatever it is, edifice. And for that, we can't really see him. We can't see Nelson, even though well, we've literally put him on top of a 50-metre 
pedestal. And I think it's worthwhile to take a better look at whoever we've put up there. So my aim over the next few episodes is really to give a narrative account of what happened, because I think it's clear that loads of people simply don't know. And I think it's a really interesting story uh, with some good twists and turns. And I think for that alone, it's worth learning about. But also, I think we, we need to have that narrative account. We need to know what happened in order to discuss this moment in history and its ramifications and if it's worth remembering and why we remember it. So the, the context of the Trafalgar campaign, which is what we're going to be talking about, not the Battle of Trafalgar, but the Trafalgar campaign, comes against the backdrop of Napoleonic Europe. This is the turbulent period that starts in the 1790s and it kind of ends after Waterloo in 1815. And this is all going to be wildly oversimplified, but it's going to have to be. Otherwise, well, there's a whole other podcast to be done about the Napoleonic Wars, which maybe I'll do at some point. But the remit for our story in this series begins really in 1805, in kind of January, um, and ends by October 1805. So we're right slap bang in the middle of it, of this this era of Napoleonic Europe. There's a great series. Mike Duncan uh, does a series called Revolutions. Um, Series 3, I think, does an amazing job over about 55 episodes talking about the French Revolution. So go and check that out. There is some important context that I would like to give, though. So as our story begins in 1805, Napoleon is the master of most of Europe. He recently is Emperor Napoleon I. He has been, up until that point, first consul Napoleon, and he, in fact, crowns himself... Uh, Rather than being crowned, he crowns himself emperor in 1804. He puts the crown on his own head uh, in a symbolic gesture. The Pope's there, but the Pope doesn't put it on his head. He has in the previous the wars of the coalitions, which are against Prussia and Great Britain and Austria and Russia in various combinations and are very complicated. And they're on and off for lots of the time. As I said, not going to go into them. But he has in these wars peeled off a lot of what is now West Germany, around the Rhine. Uh, he set up republics in Italy, in Holland. He's put a big, the, the big continental powers that be, Prussia, Austria, Russia, uh, militarily, diplomatically, are kind of under his thumb. They're kind of out of the way. The big, big deal at this point is Spain. They are absolutely in the 16th and 17th centuries. So going back a bit, they are the preeminent power. They are explosively powerful in that time. But to be honest, by this point, have become a bit of a wreck, have become a bit of a husk of what they used to be. And for Napoleon, they're a sort of neutral, but very much under French control kind of state. They're in no position to to be arguing about that. And and very shortly, they're going to be in the fight as well. Now, Europe is actually at the start of 1803, in a period of peace. One of the various kind of eyes of the storm that pop up over this period. Since the Treaty of Amiens in 1802, Europe has been at peace. There's been an attempt to stop the bloodshed and see if France can exist as revolutionary France in concord with the other powers and not throw everything off. Napoleon's domination of Europe had really scared the other powers in a big way for a couple of reasons. Europe at this point uh, was called various things, there's various metaphors that historians used or or commentators of the time used. The stately quadrille is one of them, which is an idea, basically a quadrille is a a dance. And it's the idea that there are these five powers who, like in a dance, change partners, take their turn in the spotlight, and then they go to the side and whatever, and that they're kind of in balance, and that none of them's going to become totally dominant. And it's best that way. You know, it, it suits the royal families of all of these powers that they stay in this balanced state where they sometimes have wars and they have alliances and so forth, but nobody's going to get totally wiped off the map. It works for everybody. The Napoleon 
and France, revolutionary France, kind of change all that. So firstly, he represents an aggressive, united, expansionist France. And France is one of the, already one of the more powerful of those powerful states. He was doing very well at conquering his neighbours, upsetting that balance of power. And most of these big five powers just, they wanted to make lots of money in their colonies. They didn't really want to have big wars in Europe. They were doing very nicely, just raking in the taxes. So Napoleon and France as an expansionist power kind of upsetting things. Secondly, and much more importantly, he represented a totally new ideological virus, if you like, a an ideological plague as the totalitarian ruling powers of Europe saw it. Peter here, just editing the episode, I want to correct a deeply embarrassing mistake. I of course don't mean totalitarian at all, I mean absolutist or monarchist uh, to varying degrees. Of course totalitarianism is a completely different thing and any political theorists out there would uh, probably tell me that uh, Napoleon's France was a lot more totalitarian than any of the surrounding monarchies. Anyway, I'm about to tell you what the uh, virus that France represented was. This was republicanism. This hadn't been made up by Napoleon, it hadn't even been made up by the French, but, but the French Revolution had changed one of, well, pretty much, probably the oldest, the most absolutist of the monarchies in Europe, France, into a republic. A state for the people by the people. Now the crowned heads of Europe can't help but fear this ideological contagion that is spreading quickly and directly threatens their lives. At this point the King of France and Marie Antoinette have been beheaded. So it's not just a case of power politics at this point, it's a case of personal well-being for the crowned heads of Europe of stopping Napoleon. Because if republicanism takes hold in their countries, they feel their heads won't be long on their necks. So they're worried by actual conquest, you know, in which case they might be supplanted and they'll be replaced with a republic. But they're also worried about the kind of optics of the situation and how their own subjects will see it. Because what the French Revolution does is turn the populace, vastly the majority of all of these countries, into a potential volcano and makes it very clear that they are very capable of throwing off the the yoke of monarchy. So they're worried about how this how this looks, the way that this plays out on an ideological stage. Napoleon's ideology is being given apparent vindication by his success. He can say, look, republicanism and a united French people can conquer most of Europe, that a country is better off when they do that. And up until this point throughout history, military success has been linked to kind of kind of credibility for a ruler, for a government. You need look no further back than the Falklands um, and Margaret Thatcher, or perhaps maybe the Second Gulf War and the powers that be that, that, that began that, that there was a degree of a cynical angle that we can take, which is that those, those wars were started because the powers that started them wanted a war and they wanted a battle that they could win because that would show everyone that way back in history that the gods are on our side and therefore we ought to be in charge. But more recently, you can quite easily turn that into, well, look, it just works, but our system works better. We do well when I'm in charge, so let's keep me in charge. Um, and Napoleon is, is looking fantastic on those grounds. People can't help but see this. This is in the, in the press and so forth. And the crowned heads of Europe are looking at their people, reading the newspapers, and wondering if the people are thinking, well, that seems to be working. That seems to be going very well. 
And they're worried that this model and the, the apparent success of this model will give parties within their own nations. You know, the French Revolution wasn't started by just the ordinary people on the street. The French Revolution was started by the, by the powerful liberal intellectual elite and the political elite to some extent. And therefore parties within our own nation, for example, political parties, parliament, might decide, ah, oh, actually that works well, we can do without a king. Napoleon, as I said, crowned himself. He placed the crown on his own head. Um, he took it from the Pope's hand and he placed it on his own head in a kind of gesture of, I have put myself here. And maybe a, a sort of a gesture of, implicitly, you can all put yourself where you want to be through, through your own will, through your own hard work. doesn't matter where you were born. doesn't matter how rich your parents were. You can decide what you want to be. So to take, to take a, a slight digression, we can, we can contrast this really with the American War of Independence that happened not very long before this, a few decades before this. Although American independence is specifically about liberating the US from the domination of a crowned head, it doesn't go so far as to insist on the spread of these ideologies into neighboring regions. That's a real contrast. The American War of Independence is about freeing the US and, admittedly, further down the line with the Spanish-American War and, and 1812 and all sorts of wars that do happen and maybe our current world geopolitical situation, the US does go out and try to spread its ideology further afield. In its, in its initial formation, in fact, the US is specifically against that. John Quincy Adams, who's one of the early presidents of the United States, who says, we will not go abroad in search of foreign monsters to slay. And that was used as a reason not to get into the First World War, not to get into the, the Second World War for some time. So just to apply that properly to, to, to our period, to bring that back to, to, to 1805, the French Revolution makes a doctrine of liberating the rest of Europe, of finding those foreign monsters to slay. It's in its kind of founding constitution that it will help any Republicans across Europe who want to, you know, escape from their tyrannical regimes. So it codifies in its constitution part of this movement is to go out there and to mess up the balance of Europe, again, as the crowned heads would see it. Now, how was... Napoleon able to do this? That's a really, really important question in understanding the stakes of what we're going to be talking about. I remember first learning about this period, and the first question that popped into my head was, well, how did Napoleon and France fight on and off most of the rest of the big strong powers of Europe and win? It's a bit like Second World War with Nazi Germany, though I'm not making an equivalency between those two ideologically, but, you know, they don't really have a huge empire. They don't have any obvious advantage on the, on the face of it. But, and they're taking on several other nations, big nations, many of which at the time might all, on their own, have been considered the most powerful on earth. The Prussian military tradition at this point, the might of the Holy Roman Empire, the British Empire. So how do you do it? Well, this is where we arrive at our first Fosbury flop moment. If you remember all the way back to the start of the episode, that seemingly unrelated story I told you about Dick Fosbury at the 1968 Olympics. And uh, here I am, tying it back. So how does an apparent underdog, gangly Dick Fosbury, walking out in front of that crowd, suddenly pull off an upset? How did he take gold away from all of those people who were, you know, well-known high jumpers? This is one of the reasons why I think military history can be really interesting. And I don't want to focus this podcast entirely on military history. I don't want it to become about guns and dead bodies and blokes doing blokey things. Um, but military history, I think, is really interesting because most of the time battles aren't happening. The vast majority of world history is the world running along, 
and doing its own thing and there not being battles. And the world at this point, you know, when it's not in a battle, is running on receive wisdom on a bunch of, on a kind of a, an agreed set of rules that everyone, due to what's happened up until that point and how things have turned out and, and what everyone expects to happen, that's what the world's running on. You know, everyone's just kind of assuming that things are going to go as they do and everything generally pans out. Now, military history, and when, when you have a battle, you suddenly get rubber meets the road moments. You know, where it stops being about how people think things are, about how they assume things are going to turn out, and it becomes about how they are now going to be. It becomes about how they actually are, and what that does is then form the received wisdom for the next period of, of peace. A kind of a sharp, a crack in history, if you like, where everyone suddenly has to update their assumptions. And that can be quite violent, I suppose, to take the metaphor a bit further, you know, like an earthquake in which the pressure builds and builds and builds and suddenly the tectonic plates shift to where they're meant to be and that shift can be pretty traumatic, can be pretty painful and can cause a lot of damage and that's what happens in military history. Now the difference between, at this point, how people think things are, the five great powers in Europe perfectly balanced, everything carrying on in status quo and the reality, France capable of knocking out all of them really and dominating Western Europe is drastic. This comes about really, because like Dick Fosbury did, somebody changed the rules. Up until this point, wars in early modern Europe had mostly been fought by small professional armies, in the tens of thousands usually, sometimes even commanded by their monarch or a member of their royal family or aristocracy, conducted in a formalised, almost still semi-chivalric way. That's not to say that they were pleasant battles at all, or they were gentlemanly or admirable, or better necessarily in any sense that what than what's going to come, but they were they were they were taking place under a banner of accepted rules and expectations. Wars would be decided by a couple of big engagements between these professional armies, and then a peace would be decided between the two ruling monarchs, um, who might even be related. That would usually result in exchanging a bit of territory or paying a bit of an indemnity or or giving up a claim on somewhere or other. That is to say that wars up until this point had a, had a pretty controlled sort of worst case. They had a, a kind of a bottom, an agreed bottom of, well, look, it's not in any of our interests that we totally wreck each other's societies, that we, that we bankrupt ourselves and that we kill everyone in each other's nations. So we'll just, we'll have a kind of a, almost more of like a show fight, see what, see what the outcome is. And we can take that to its to its nth degree, and there's something quite attractive about it, which is to say you could just decide the outcome of a war with, like, your, your champions. You know, and some of the Greek city-states in, in ancient Greece did this. They would just say, well, who's your best guy? You can fight our best guy, and whoever wins, great. And we don't need to spill everyone's blood, and we don't need to spend lots of money on a war. Now, that has all of its own sorts of problems, but that was how things had been proceeding, really, up until that point. And you can see how it's beneficial that system because because really it's it's not in the monarch's interest to unthrone his brother monarch probably and then have to be responsible for putting somebody else on that throne and he's never going to conquer the entirety of germany let's say he's probably just going to chip off a little bit of it where the people don't really know who's their king anyway and don't care that much and they'll pay him taxes now and fantastic nobody loses out too much 
this is really the system that's that's been in place in Europe for a really long time. This is this is kind of more like medieval warfare than we would think of as as than, than, than modern warfare. It isn't national in its scope, but and what I mean by that is it's dynastic warfare. I would call it, and that means that really it's it's a case of the royal family being at war with the royal family of another nation. England isn't at war with France. House Plantagenet is at war with House Bourbon or whoever. So the nation of England doesn't have to foot the bill. The royal family does. They're the ones who are going to gain by it and they're the ones who are going to lose by it. Now, obviously, the poor sods in their army are also going to lose by it, but broadly, the country isn't going to know that much about it. But by the way, he he changes the rules just like Dick Fosbury did. I think it can be argued that the Napoleonic Wars mark a seismic shift in our history. As much as we see the First World War as a breaking point between the old world and the new world, I think that the Napoleonic Wars, maybe not as significantly as the First World War, but they certainly mark out the kind of blueprint by which that war will be fought. So Napoleon's Fosbury flop, and how he is able to pull off this upset of the status quo, is what's called the levee en masse. And he doesn't actually come up with that concept. That's maybe fairer to say that is a product of the, of the French Revolution. But it's under Napoleon that this concept most obviously bears fruit. The levee en masse is arguably the introduction in early modern Europe of the concept of total war. The National Convention, who were one of kind of phases in, in, of, of French leadership, um, in, 19, in 1793 declared, and I'm going to quote it at length because it nicely sums it up, quote, from this moment until that in which the enemy shall have been driven from the soil of the Republic, all Frenchmen are in permanent requisition for the service of the armies. The young men shall go to battle. The married men shall forge arms and transport provisions. The women shall make tents and clothing and shall serve in the hospitals. The children shall turn old linen into lint. The aged shall betake themselves to the public places in order to arouse the courage of the warriors and preach the hatred of kings and the unity of the Republic. And it goes on. I'm, I won't read all of it, but you get the picture. It goes on to detail which sorts of horses will be used for what, what guns will be used for what, what buildings will be used for each aspect of the war. In other words, you no longer have Louis XVI at war with Frederick William III. You have France at war with Prussia. Or rather, in this case, and this is what's important, you have France at war with Frederick William III. And Frederick William III doesn't have a chance in that equation. That's where the upset, the, the disparity, comes from. So the old powers, at the start of this period, are fighting the war that they expect to fight with their relatively small professional armies. Prussia, at this time, which, is, which has been dubbed not a country with an army, but an army with a country. That gives you an idea of Prussia's kind of military tradition. It was considered to have a very large army, and it had about 150 to 200,000 people in it in its whole army, and they would never all be in one place at the same time to, to fight a battle, but that was their army, and that was a big army of the time. The French Revolutionary Army, by contrast, at its height had as many as 1.5 million soldiers under arms. In short, that is how the French Republic and then the French Empire pulled off what looks just crazy on paper. They just pull off a complete paradigm shift in the way that the war is going to be fought. And they're able to do that because of their ideological grounding, because of the idea that, that, it, that the, the nation belongs to the people now. And therefore, they have a reason for fighting in a war. They have a reason for trying to preserve that, you know, that ideological moment for their nation. The other big powers turned up ready to fight one war, 
and France change the rules. And the other powers do eventually catch up. They have to bring their armies up to the same level eventually. And that's actually in itself a deeply traumatic process for all of the other nations. That They are forced to change their countries in ways that they really would rather not, particularly that the, the kings and, and so forth would really rather not do. I think it's also arguably it's the first moment we see a foreshadowing of the numbers that will be involved in the really total wars of the 20th century. Because once you've experimented with these things, you can't go back to the old way of doing things. And I suppose it's a little bit like mustard gas or something in the First World War, or, or nuclear weapons, I suppose now. Once you've got it, once you've, once you've tried it, once you've opened Pandora's box, you can't go back to having 10,000 men in your army actually as attractive as that might sound I suppose you can't go back let's say even further to just having one guy who fights against one guy because inevitably the nation turns up all of them and in the 20th century everyone shows up they're assuming that the escalation will take it to a war of nation against nation and it wouldn't do for them to turn up with with 10,000 and see does that work no you've got to turn up with everyone and that's why I think that the Napoleonic Wars which I think are kind of overlooked a little bit are foundational to what then happens in the 20th century Anyway, the effect this has in 1805, at the beginning of our story, um, is that the the peace of Amiens, this the brief eye of the storm that has separated the the French Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic Wars, was a very strained peace because the stakes are huge. They're kind of bigger than they have been for any of these countries before because the numbers of people involved, the, the might of France, so the very real possibility of being totally crushed in these wars, but also the ideological underpinnings of the war what is being fought over is just miles bigger in 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 orders of magnitude larger than previous wars have been and that's for a really good reason we see it in the first world war that total war if you're going to commit you know millions of of people to the war effort means that the outcome of that war has to be total as well it's not just that you fight a different kind of a war but the out you know you get to have a peace and you change some bits of territory and somebody pays an indemnity to somebody else and that's all great the, the outcome of that is that you can't back down without total victory or total defeat and we see that in the first world war it kind of can't end there's a point in 1916-17 where it almost seems like everyone wants it to end but they can't because nobody's been properly fully beaten nobody nobody has been crushed into dust which is which is what the publics of these nations will now demand because they have put so much up for it. So the other powers of Europe, other than France, are looking at this and thinking, France won't stop with a lukewarm peace. France is now all or nothing. France has put everything on the table. So this is a very strained peace, and it breaks down. There's another similarity here, I suppose, to, to the Second World War, Nazi Germany. You get a sense that Great Britain, which had weathered the, the French Revolutionary Wars, the Wars of the Coalitions, better than the other powers, it really got off surprisingly lightly as compared to Austria or Prussia, hiding behind its natural moat of the English Channel, was in a dilemma, in a kind of appeasement situation, with a nation that had showed itself to be incredibly powerful and potentially was just getting more powerful and capable of toppling what were thought to be ancient, indestructible, conservative regimes all over Europe. And there was a series throughout the Peace of Amiens of ultimatums, backdowns, very like the Munich Conference before the Second World War. But eventually, Great Britain gives France an ultimatum to get its forces out of Holland. France doesn't. And in May 18th, 1803, the war starts again. Great Britain declares war on France. Now, the absolute most important thing to understand contextually 
for Trafalgar and for Nate Nelson is that Napoleon, having dominated the rest of Europe in 1804 through to the beginning of 1805, has gathered an enormous invasion force at Boulogne, near Calais. Now, I probably have completely massacred the pronunciation of that place name, but I am completely dedicated to, to doing better than what the Americans call it, which is Boulogne, which is... I suppose a bit like bologna. It's spelt similarly, um, and I think that's where that comes from. But Boulogne, which is a, a big port city on the kind of Calais coastline, this is the stretch of the channel where it's at its thinnest. Between Calais and Dover, it's about 20 miles across the English Channel. You can see Calais. So we know it's visible from Dover on a clear day and vice versa. And at this point, we hear that watchers from the French coast, you know, as they would see the white cliffs of Dover, Watchers from the English coast could see the French coast turned white with the tents of Napoleon's army. Napoleon here had gathered about 100,000 men, a force that would swell to nearly 160,000 at its largest. This army had been training and drilling for years in some form or other, actually, in expectation of a planned invasion of Britain. And the pageantry of this army just makes it perfect for the opening of a movie. And this is something we'll come back to because there is a lot about this that I'm stunned hasn't been made into a movie. In 1804, Napoleon, he visits his army at, at Boulogne, and the army is arrayed on a curve of the cliff in an enormous sort of horseshoe shape, and it's surrounding a throne platform that Napoleon has had erected. The throne is said to be that used by Dagobert, who is a legendary king of the Franks a millennium earlier. And the platform is decorated with over 200 blood-stained bullet-holed banners from the enemies of France that have been conquered. And Napoleon endows 2,000 French soldiers with the Légion d'honneur, which is the highest French military medal. It's like the Victoria Cross. And he leads them all in an oath to uphold the honour of their country to tear down the feudal monarchies of Europe. Napoleon has, has kind of stage-managed this as a start to his campaign, infusing it with a sense of destiny. In stark contrast to this, there are three men, I suppose, that we might see as Napoleon's counterparts in Great Britain, who are anticipating that this thing is going to take place this invasion and that they're going to have to deal with it and they all offer an insight all of these three men into the state of the country the state of our, our British defences firstly we've got the Prime Minister who's William Pitt the Younger who is still relatively young at this point though he's, he's been worn down by a couple of decades of, of being the Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger at this point is drilling 3,000 men of the Sankport volunteers they're a militia service of that section of the coast. Pitt had a farm in this area and he was determined to take up his role as their colonel. And Pitt was a formidable character in loads of ways, a very interesting politician and a, a kind of giant of 18th, 19th century British history. But he was not a famous soldier. And these 3,000 men were not receiving the Légion d'honneur. They were amateur soldiers, many of them ununiformed, with pitchforks, drilling with, you know, sticks clubs without guns. They were not Britain's only defence by any means, but they were pretty typical of the militia forces that would meet Napoleon's invasion. These militia would be supporting the British army. Despite having their moments, the British army was not a very efficient fighting machine at this point, not compared with the French army, and it was the militia that was going to have to do a lot of the fighting with their elderly politician leader. Another potential counterpart to Napoleon we can see is the Duke of York. The Duke of York is famous for marching up and down hills. He's the Duke of York from that nursery rhyme. And he was in charge of coordinating the defence of the country. So he's a proper military man, and he's properly got that job. He's in charge of, of meeting Napoleon head on. And he was in this august position because he was a royal. So 
we run here straight into one of the problems that the old powers of Europe suffered from. Despite what they might have thought, their bloodline, their ancient warrior bloodlines, didn't necessarily make them supermen. And they were given huge amounts of responsibility. And the rest of the army is a kind of natural continuation of this outlook that birth and money should give you a, a, a place as a leader rather than being a good leader. Officer commissions in the British army were for sale. Now, this sounds completely insane at this, you know, at this point, but someone could essentially think, I'd look good in a uniform, or I'd quite like to have captain in front of my name, and they'd buy a captaincy, and that would be it. They'd, they'd, they'd have that rank now, and they could sell it. They could sell it to somebody else if they got bored of being a captain. And actually, many families bought captaincies for their, you know, five, six-year-old kids that they would then come into. You know, pe people would would wait out the period of being captain as a, as a 14-year-old, and then by the time they were 20, they could, they could go up to being a major or a colonel. Fantastic. Now, as you can imagine, that doesn't really lead to a very capable leadership. So that's the Duke of York, who actually, to give him his due, was a relatively good administrator and came up with some good ideas, but he wasn't Napoleon. Our third candidate for a counterpart for Napoleon is George III, the monarch of the country. So he's kind of the British equivalent of Napoleon. Um, at this point, he's 66 years old, been on the throne for over four decades. He's actually the, the oldest and the longest serving British monarch up until Queen Victoria and then Queen Elizabeth II now. So he's been at it for a really long time. He's already started to suffer from a cataract problem at this point, which will blind him, and the mental illness that will cause him to be known as Mad King George. And despite this frailty, he does, nobly or misguidedly, he, he has the following to say, quote, I should like to fight Boney single-handed. I'm sure I should. I should give him a good hiding. Should his troops effect a landing, I shall certainly put myself at the head of mine." End quote. Now, the contrast this strikes with the military grandeur of Napoleon's army at Boulogne is, is really all you need to know about the outlook for Great Britain in 1804-1805. France was to be led by Napoleon, whose presence alone on the battlefield was said to be worth 10,000 men, whilst the British defence was to be led by Pitt, the Duke of York, or Mad King George. And this is a slightly unfair characterization. There were, there were plenty of capable, efficient people working to defend Britain, but similarly to 1940 with the Germans or the Spanish in 1588, an invasion of Britain was a real possibility. And Britain, which has never really you know, been a country for a big professional army, being an island, was really woefully unprepared to face it. So the fulcrum of this whole moment of the war is whether Napoleon can get his army across the channel. That's really all that's standing in his way. Napoleon is eyeing up the channel, and he had the following to say, quote, A nation is very foolish, when it has no fortifications and no army, to lay itself open to seeing an army of 100,000 veterans land on its shores. This is the masterpiece of the flotilla. It costs a great deal of money, but it is necessary for us to be masters of the sea for six hours only, and England will have ceased to exist. Unquote. He's full of bluster there, but to some extent you can't argue with him. Crossing the channel, though, which he does say is but a small matter of six hours, has never historically been easy. It has caused lots of problems for lots of people. It's deceptive on a map. It's, it's, it's deceptive because it looks so small, and as we said, you can, see, you can see across it, and people swim across it all the time. But actually, it's, it's a really unpredictable, it's a hard-to-navigate, stormy bit of water. It's actually likely the Romans, you know, our first documented invasion of Britain, were scuppered in their original attempt because they didn't understand tides. They were from the Mediterranean. And that, I suppose, unpreparedness to cross the channel, or inability to cross the channel, 
is something that kind of rings down the ages. Napoleon has undertaken an enormous logistical project for years to prepare for this, so he hasn't underestimated it. He has hugely overhauled Boulogne and he kind of built a, a breakwater. He's physically changed the geography of his harbour in order to make it big enough for his crossing fleet. He's assembled 2,293 craft to facilitate the crossing. Now, it's slightly reminiscent of the Romans' poor understanding here because these craft were purpose-built for it, you know, full of French ingenuity and, and modernity. They were, they were landing craft, kind of prototypes of those D-Day flat-bottomed landing craft. However, practically, they didn't really work. Uh, they, they were mostly flat-bottomed, so it was, it was sort of thought they would just tip over if they were in anything other than a pretty mill-pond flat ocean. Just to tie this into the rest of history, this remodeling of Boulogne and, and, and building of these thousands of ships ties in with the Louisiana Purchase, which you've probably heard of, or, well, it's the Louisiana Sale, I suppose, from Napoleon's point of view. It, it pretty much doubled the size of the United States, and it was at really rock-bottom rates that the French sold Louisiana to the Americans. It was made to fund Napoleon's projects. Arguably, that's why he sold at such a low rate. You know, he needed the money. Some really incredible ideas were, were considered by the French. An inventor called Jean-Charles Thilovier, which I've probably butchered again, he promised a giant balloon that would carry 3,000 soldiers across the channel at a time. And he actually he kind of got it into its prototype stage, but it never really convinced uh, Napoleon. Um, a tunnel was really considered by the French, and it was feared by the British. There are cartoons and editorials you can see in, in the newspapers of the time that, that show this happening. This formed such a fear in the national consciousness. This, this was one of the major arguments against the eventual Channel Tunnel project um, in the 1980s, which had been you know, in consideration for a really long time. The idea that it was undermining Britain's defences and that people would invade the country through it. Now, on the other side of the channel, it's important to realise that this was a real threat, that it sounds silly now, but that these things were, were really worrying. And it was, it was not just a case of at some point in the future these things might happen. It was a case of tomorrow morning we might wake up and the, uh, the flotilla has, has taken to the sea and they're here and, and our entire country is kind of overturned. We're quite insulated nowadays, I think, from the idea that Britain would be invaded. Because we're not a, a continental nation, other nations in Europe and around the world really have much more of a sense of, well, no, sometimes armies do just walk in and things change overnight and they that can be unexpected i think in great britain there's a there's a sense of sort of solidity i think and a, a sense of maybe false self-confidence that comes from this, this sense of well you know whatever happens in the the continent it's not going to happen here and they're not going to manage to get across across the channel but at this point it was a real possibility there was already a system in place for barricades for trenches all those materials had been gathered that the population of London would be enlisted to dig in the event of an invasion. They would be called out. So it was a real thing. They were, they were ready to go out and do it. And the Duke of York was prepared for house-to-house -house fighting in the capital. He outlined that in his plans. Kind of a, a proto-Stalingrad sort of urban warfare situation. Some honourable mentions, really, of the physical legacy, and this plays into our, our memory of this period, um, the physical legacy of this threat are Martello Towers. These kind of, you will have seen them, they're these interesting kind of standalone, uh, probably about 50 feet tall, round towers that sit on their own. And the idea was to ring the whole country with them as these kind of mini fortresses. And the, the project kind of got half done um, and, and they're still there. More obviously um, is 
is the the military canal between Folkestone and Hastings. Anyone who lives in in East Sussex or or Kent will, will be aware of it. That it's this canal, kind of arrow straight, and it goes between Folkestone and, and Hastings. And that was literally dug as a defensive measure, as a kind of secondary moat. It was reckoned uh, Napoleon would land on in that area, and the military canal would kind of cut it off as a p- potential spot, an easy spot for him to get a foothold. As I've said, it's it's difficult to cross the channel, but despite this difficulty, the British Navy was really the only thing that was stopping the invasion from happening. The troop transports would be slow. They wouldn't have any real firepower. They could just be sunk, really, at will by British warships. Napoleon's estimate of six hours to effect a crossing is probably a bit optimistic, but it would really, it would be a day or two. It would be a day or two of controlling the channel, and if Napoleon could do that, if he could keep the Royal Navy out of it for two days, 48 hours, it was very likely that he could effect a landing which the British military had no way of dealing with. So I hope that begins to make it clear why naval warfare is kind of the subject of this podcast and of the stakes of what was going on at this time. But what I want to go into now is what are we really talking about with naval warfare of this period? Because I think we've got quite a clear image, a lot of us, of what it might look like of a sailing ship and... We think we might have the basics down, but I, there's, there's quite a lot of specific stuff going on, and it is such a leap from what we're used to today, even though it's not that far in the past. It is just really a quantum leap away from any modern military experience that I think it bears going into. The interesting thing about this era is that this is really the highest expression of a technology before it becomes redundant. As I said, it's not that long ago. The golden age of sail ends about 170 years ago. And after that point, probably in the American Civil War, in its first instance, you get steamships and so forth beginning to push out sailing ships. Naval warfare in cannon-firing sailing ships had been the norm since at least the reign of Henry VIII. So a good 250 years before the start of this period. And though this this period is called the, the Age of Sail, depictions of sailing have been found dated back as far as 5,500 BCE, so over 7,000 years before this. So this is the final point, the final evolutionary stage in a 7,000-year history of a technology. And for that reason, there's some cri- almost kind of science fiction-level stuff going on. Now, it, we want to start with the basics. It seems like stating the absolutely blindingly obvious, but these ships are propelled totally by wind. You're probably used to seeing these ships with sails. They've all got motors on board as well, so they'll do a bit of wind sailing, but they can, if, if all else fails, they can just rev up their motor and do what they need to do. The vast majority of these ships were moved totally by the wind. And as I say, that's been going on for over 7,000 years. So there is this huge reserve of institutional knowledge. This is a like an art form by this point. And, well, or actually, more accurately, an incredibly developed science. What we need to remember about sailing is that the wind can come from any direction. You can't, well, you can predict a little bit where the wind's going to come from, but it can come from absolutely any, any of 360 degrees. The wind can entirely go away. The wind can be far too strong. You can go into the wind by tacking, which I will not even try to explain over the medium of podcast, but you're basically totally at the mercy of the wind and of something that you can predict a little bit and that you can use your you know, salty sailor's instincts to tell you where the wind's going to come from next. But really, that's, that's unpredictable. 
So to get into these guys' shoes, you really need to remember that they are performing a really high stakes activity. They're fighting a war, and as I've already said, the stakes of this war are super high, with the most, probably the most important factor being one that is completely out of your control. Now further to that, you have the problem of navigation. You've got latitude, which is essentially how far north or south of the equator you are, and you've got longitude, which is how far east or west you are. How do you work those things out? One way of working out where you are was dead reckoning. Dead reckoning is a fantastic insight into the limitations and the expertise that was going on here. Dead reckoning was a system by which you worked out where you started, where you last knew you confirmed, you know, you, you could confirm that you were. You worked out what direction you were going in, and you worked out how quickly you were going, and you just plotted it out on a map. You just thought, well, that that if we were if we were there six hours ago and we were going about this speed and we were pointing in about this direction, we should be here, X on the map. That's the equivalent. Imagine trying to navigate a totally empty field because you know, most of the ocean is that, with your eyes shut, with a blindfold on. There is some technology that is a fantastic expression of the development of this, as I say, this highly evolved craft of sailing ships. The longitude watch was invented to, 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 to work out where, how far around the Earth you were. And the fascinating way that that works is essentially, it kind of works on time zones. It's a very accurate clock that keeps time and you set it at, you know, 12 o'clock in Greenwich and you work out the difference between, you know, what you go, well, I know it's 12 o'clock in Greenwich and it's only 10.30 here, which means I must be X number of miles over to the west. Communications are a further limitation on this time. We're so used to, obviously, the internet and mobile phones and so forth, but even in, you know, modern military naval stuff, we've got sat-nav and global positioning and all of that kind of stuff, which, which seems like the absolute first thing that you'd want to sort out. At this point, the limit of a captain or a ship's knowledge is the horizon. Anything beyond that is rumour, is hearsay, has a, has a kind of time lag on it. You can only send a message as fast as the quickest ship in your fleet as well. You can only send a message if there's a ship going in that direction. So what this looks like, and this is going to be useful particularly in the next episode, is these fleets are moving around in kind of a web of rumours and hearsay that they have created, that they've patched together. Where you, you know, you might come across a ship that's going in the opposite direction and say, oh, well, we saw the enemy fleet two days ago off Gibraltar and they were heading in this direction. And you've got to work out if that's true or not. You've got to work out how far they might have gone since then. And then you've also got to get into the head of the enemy commander. And that is where lots of these naval officers, particularly Nelson, really show themselves to be a cut above others. Being able to hear where the enemy are and working out, well, if I was him, I would be heading here. But then the thing is, you're staking a huge amount of risk on that, you know, that prediction. So you've got to have real guts to trust that all of your instincts are right. There's also no way to know that ships, you know, you might see a ship on the horizon. There's no way to know that what ship that is. Lots of these guys, I suppose, there's a kind of a, almost like a kind of like football fan knowledge database that they've got because they are career obsessives. So lots of them, you know, might be able to, at a few miles, identify a ship. Think, oh, well, I saw her out of dry dock in Portsmouth and 
that's the way she cuts her sails or that's the way that her crew always like to tack or whatever. But again, that's a guess. And that's based on this, this incredible level of expertise. And there's lots of ways that they would used to, you know, they trick each other. They would run up an American flag, for instance, which was often a neutral flag. So they're kind of hedging their bets and say, well, I'm an American, so you don't know what you're going to do. Or they could run up a French flag. They would keep several flags to think, well, who are we going to pretend to be today? And then at the last minute, because it would be dishonorable, of course, you know, chivalry is still a big thing here. It'd be dishonorable to engage with the enemy under a false flag. But you can keep your French flag flying right until you fire the first shot and then run up the Union Jack and um, let them have it. So as I was saying, to remedy these problems, these limitations, these technologies have evolved that I think are kind of, you know, science fiction. I don't think it's any coincidence that the kind of pop culture of steampunk and stuff uses so much brass and dials and all of that stuff, because, you know, that's the, that stuff all lives in the age of sail, really, in the, and, and going into the Industrial Revolution, of these things that seem like, like sci-fi objects as I said, the longitude watch, which would be kind of bolted to your to your ship and was this incredibly precise chronometer. Sextants, which are kind of wonderful sort of protractor gadgets with a telescope attached to it. The system of signals even that they used was was these, you know, incredibly complex books and codes and flags that would run up and down. Compasses, uh, winches all of this stuff that is kind of taking what is a 7,000-year-old piece of technology to its absolute most scientific cutting edge, manipulating the physics of all of this stuff to make it work for you and to make it work in the best possible way. And these ships were foremost expression of the societies that built them, of the technologies available at the time. And I suppose that's true in, you know, in, the, in the First World War and the Second World War, you get these super dreadnoughts and their kind of prestige items and... Uh, you know, great diplomatic treaties are signed on them and so forth because they are so impressive. But at this time, it's no different. We're going to use the Victory as a kind of case study ship as we go forward because it's going to be very relevant to our story. But it's also not untypical of big battleships of the time. The Victory is what's called a first-rate ship of the line, which we'll go into exactly what all of that means later, but basically it means it's the biggest class of warship. It's not the absolute biggest of warships, but it's it's in the biggest kind of group. It's such a big investment to make one of these that the up-to-date technology that that is built on the Victory when it's when it's made is is still up to scratch 40 years after its launch. Now, for for context, ships built at the start of the Second World War were redundant by the end of the of the Second World War. You know, six years later, lots of them were were kind of out outclassed by the more modern ships. But these so much effort was poured into these ships that 40 years later they're they're kind of still good. They're still the best that you can get. The Victory was built from the wood of at least 6,000 mature trees. It took five years from commissioning to its launch. Um, interestingly, once the frame was made, ships were kind of made in their skeleton frame and they were left to season to kind of dry out and for the wood to harden and, and so forth. Um, the victory was actually made at the end of the Seven Years' War in the middle of the 18th century, and that meant that it could sit seasoning for longer than most ships would be. It didn't need to be hurried into service. Um, and that might be a, maybe an indication of why it was still in service 40 years later, why it was still up to scratch. Um, it cost in the region of £63,000 at the time. That's in 1760 money. In 1760, the UK tax revenue was about £9 million. So I'm not an economist, and... 
by very rough calculations, that puts the victory at almost 1% of the country's entire tax revenue for that year. Now, compared to the Millennium Dome, which that was the thing I could think of as the big, a big public works kind of project, compared to the Millennium Dome, which was built kind of around the year 2000, the cost of that ran to about £700 million. UK tax receipts were about £315 billion in 2000. So the Millennium Dome amounted to like 0.2% of the UK's tax receipts for that year. Victory is almost five times that in terms of an investment. So these things are like huge investments for their country. And that's one of the reasons why the navies are not affected so much by this total war idea that I was kind of unpacking earlier. France can't just warp speed itself into being five, six times bigger as a navy because it takes time to build these things. Each of these ships represents a huge investment in time and money, huge amounts of wood. The sailors themselves are specialists, so a little bit like the pilots in the Battle of Britain. That you know they they are a, they are the commodity. Actually, they're one of the limiting factors as to how big your your navy can be. And Britain has an advantage in this. Britain has about thirteen thousand miles of coast, depending on how you measure it. And any time you're at most seventy miles from the sea. So the UK population is about 11, 12 million at this point. The French population is nearing thirty million. But Great Britain at this point can put far more sailors and a much deeper well of naval tradition into its navy at this point. And Napoleon can't just click his fingers and make that happen. He could do that on land, but he couldn't do that at sea. Now, Britain at this point really couldn't, as we've said, face Napoleon on land. Uh, There's a quote from Edward Grey, who's a a British politician at the start of the 20th century, but it very much applies to this. He said, the British army should be a projectile to be fired by the British navy. And that's really because the British Navy, because essentially they've put really since kind of the reign of Henry VIII, or well, since there's lots of different arguments as to when the the, the Royal Navy came into existence. But for the past several hundred years, they've put effort into it. And just like an Olympic athlete, you can't just put in a few months really heavy training. You can do that maybe with your army. But you really can't do that with a navy. You've got to you've got to work at it for a long time and build the expertise and the ships themselves that will will make that possible. Now, Britain at the beginning of the 19th century in this period is quintessentially a maritime empire. The British Empire at this point consists of Canada, the West Indies, India, sort of. It's not under crown rule at this point, but it's a huge trade concern. The British East India Company is is really, really powerful. Beginnings of a very young Australia, New Zealand uh, colonies as well, um, and African colonies. And we will see the value of colonies in this in this story and the pressures that they put on the, the conflict. This war is really fought with a global strategy. French ships are in the Caribbean harassing British trade. The British have to go out and fight them. The British have to be worried about that. They have to deal. The Suez Canal doesn't exist yet, so you don't have access between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. So you've got to protect trade all the way around Africa. And the French have colonies kind of interspersed with your own. So so this is, and I think can be considered, a world war, not in the sense that countries all around the world are involved, but that it is taking place all around the world, that these powers have to have global strategies in place. The interesting thing that comes here, though, you know, when we're talking about a world war, we're, we're thinking about at the very least the First World War, in which they've got telegraph and they can communicate pretty quickly with different theatres and so forth. As I said, this war is taking place in a world where your messages can travel as fast as the fastest ship in your fleet, which is maybe 
12 knots, something like that, which is nautical miles per hour and miles per hour are a little bit different, but it's, it's in the region of kind of 10 to 12 miles per hour. Now, the implications of this kind of global war and this global empire is that England, British Empire, has to sustain an enormous naval machine. You know, as I mentioned, this era can be seen as the kind of dawn of total war, and France kind of gets the jump on a lot of other powers with that. I said the other powers hadn't really been doing this, but I think we can see, perhaps, the British Navy and the British Navy's success over this period as a result of a kind of a total war mentality. That while their army was still very much a limited instrument, the British attitude towards the Navy was much more like that of a nation in total war. Unlike any other new European nation of, of the day, who kept, well, not necessarily smaller navies, but navies much less as a priority, as a national priority. For the British, the Navy is a national institution at this point that the whole country in many ways is functioning to keep running at full efficiency. A good example of this is how Parliament every year voted a certain number of men to the Navy. That's the literal terms, the language surrounding that piece of legislation or you know, that, that vote, is that they vote a number of men. So, I mean, by that language, the men don't get much choice in that. They're a kind of a national resource that exists to feed the institution that's there. In 1800, Great Britain had a population of about 11 million, as I said. Um, this is compared to the other four great European powers who all had really between 20 and 30 million people. And I think it's no coincidence that the first national census came in 1801. The British government was sizing up the nation and its resources. It was taking close account of everything it had at its disposal and working out how to use them to the utmost efficiency to project this growing British power overseas. In order to make that work, the nation has to become a machine to feed the continuance of its, of, of its power. And in this case, the continuance of its power is, is really in the hands of the British Navy, because it's a maritime empire. So in this context, the British Navy can, can kind of be seen as both a catalyst of state organisation you know, the needs of the Navy cause the state to have to work out, are oh, we going to need to do a census and how many people have we got and how we're going to raise the money and so forth, but also as the expression of its power. So they're both kind of the, 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 the cause and the end, the means and the end to some extent of, of changes that were, were taking place in Britain to, to change it into a, into a nation kind of focused on its own power. The physical remnants of this naval machine are still evident all over Britain today. We've got huge tracts of London's dockland. They go right down to Woolwich, Greenwich, were built to service this international institution, um, of which London was really the heart. But you've got still Portsmouth and Falmouth and lots of docklands all around the country that all have this huge heartland of, of dock space that was really brought up by both the trade but also the military infrastructure that was needed for this. There were whole wings of government dedicated to running the Navy. The Admiralty, the Navy Board, the Sick and Hurt Board, the Ordnance Board, these are all like governmental bodies that are in charge of individual little bits of the Navy, of keeping it running. This is entirely aside from all of the private concerns that fought over Navy supply, shipbuilding contracts. The most striking physical relic of this era are rope walks. We'll take the victory as a, as a case study again. Rope walks are for making ropes. The victory required about 31 miles of rope to rig it. And this rope is constantly breaking, it's being replaced. All of this rope had to be made. This is kind of pre-industrial 
processes or, you know, the very beginnings of it. So it was made pretty much by hand. The standard Royal Navy rope was 300 metres long. So in order to make them, you need a 300 metre long building. And there's still this, there's a whole trendy area of Liverpool called rope walks. And these buildings form a kind of quite a prominent feature of the, the post-industrial landscape of lots of cities around, around England. More importantly, I think, than the physical relics of, of, of what this caused to happen in, in England, we have a huge number of the institutional leftovers from this era. As I already mentioned, the national census, which can be seen as really as a direct result of the government needing to make the country a more efficient machine to feed, among other things, its navy. More notably, the income tax. Yeah, but now before you go and tear down Nelson's column right now, let me explain. You know, taxation for war has really always been at the heart of British democracy. During the 100 Years' War, for example, Parliament was regularly called in order to vote money for the armies. Parliament wasn't like it is now, it wasn't always in session, but instead they were called to sit at the pleasure of the monarch, and usually to do something specific. So usually something that the king had relinquished the executive power to do himself, and introducing new taxes was specifically one of these things in England. So in order to get an emergency pot of money to fight a war, the monarch has to go and ask the parliament. And this is a really fundamental starting point to our nation's split of power between the monarch and parliament. The monarch, if they want money, have to allow parliament to sit. And whilst parliament is sitting, they will get up to all other sorts of things. They will have lots of nefarious plots going on if you're the monarch, all sorts of probably good and you know, societally equalising things if you're a democratically inclined person. In other words, it's one of the levers by which the monarch is kind of over a barrel and is kind of accountable to the people of the nation. And the situation that we now have, really, where the monarch is totally sidelined in favour of parliament being in charge of, of making decisions, started with that relationship. So fast forward to, to 1797 from the Hundred Years' War. Fast forward to 1797, Britain is in what they don't know at the time is the beginning of the Napoleonic Wars. Now, on a fateful day in April 1797, a mutiny breaks out amongst the Navy ships and the Channel Fleet. And this will come to be called the Spithead and Nor Mutiny. And the mutiny is really incredibly successful, incredibly well organised, and is a very interesting, you know, whole other episode in the history of, of workers' activism in the UK. But it results in the sailors getting the first pay rise that they will get for 150 years. This means that Parliament have to vote a huge bump in the money given to the Navy that year. It ended up being you know, £12 million being voted to the Navy in, in 1800. Now, it would be oversimplifying to say that, that this is a direct result of just the Spithead and Nor mutiny, but certainly from, from moves like this, which massively increase the expenses of, of the government, Parliament votes in the first income tax in 1797. There wasn't income tax before that. There was individual taxes that were levied for specific purposes. There wasn't a blanket income tax. And it was initially an emergency tax, just for the duration of the war. But as usually happens with these things, by the time the war is over, the state apparatus has become dependent on that money. And so it is because of the Royal Navy, among other things, of course, but really because of that movement that you now pay a portion of your wages to the government today. And it's because of that movement, we can call necessity the mother of invention, that we don't necessarily like them, the idea of lots of our money going to, to fund the nation's wars, but it's because of that income tax that the government now has such 
a comparatively large pot of money as compared to what it used to be it to do to, to be able to do good things to have the NHS to have things like that so as a catalyst it's it can be seen as a really positive thing uh, but but certainly as a significant thing now that's all of the context I'm going to go into what I'd like to do now is talk about Nelson not Nelson in 1805 not Nelson at Trafalgar but Nelson up until that point a graphologist which is somebody who um looks at handwriting um, and analyzes it and it's an int- it's kind of it sounds a little bit like astrology or something like that but it but it does have quite a good amount of of, of quite scientific grounding a graphologist was given the letters of a right-handed man age 36 and a left-handed man age 46 and he was asked to analyze them and the graphologist concluded that the right-handed man this is a quote will always give his best and that the left-handed man quote is assertive and not afraid to take responsibility, end quote. And that, quote, the past has left a mark with the writer, end quote. The graphologist had not been told that these letters were both from the same man. These were both in the hand of Horatio Nelson before and after the loss of his right arm. His analysis gives us a you know, pretty good start, actually, on who this guy was. Just to, to recap, we have will always give his best as a younger man, that's right-handed, Um, And left-handed is assertive, not afraid to take responsibility, and the past has left a mark with the writer. Horatio Nelson was born in 1758. I'm not going to dwell a huge amount on on Nelson's personal life, frankly, because it wasn't a very big part of his life. He didn't didn't have a very big personal life. He had six months uh, out of ships when he was recovering the loss of his arm. Uh, He had a year or so at the Treaty of Amiens. But he did not spend any any large amount of time after the age of 12 not in a ship. And as we will see, you don't really have a private life, a personal life, um, when you're in a ship. I will I will look into this, his personal life, though, in as far as it affects his, his myth and his role in our national imagination. One dimension of the Nelson myth that I'd like to address straight away is the enduring idea that he worked his way up from humble origins, that he, he was the son of a Norfolk parson. Now, admittedly, he was the son of a Norfolk parson. Um, However, he had two uncles, William and Maurice Suckling, who uh, did a huge amount for his career. Getting up through the ranks is is difficult in the Navy because there are a limited number of ships and you can only really be a commander, for example, if there is a sloop or a brig to put you in charge of. The Sucklings, who occupy various positions in British naval administration, get Nelson to the front of that queue really all the time, and you know, until he's big enough to, to, to look after himself. Another example of you know, how he wasn't necessarily a, a kind of self-made man is his relationship with the young Prince William. He cultivated what, to be honest to me, seems like a pretty obviously self-serving relationship with him, a pretty cynical one, because Prince William was a liability, really, to be friends with. He was not particularly successful in the Navy and wasn't well regarded and kind of put Nelson at odds with some quite powerful people. He only respected ability, Nelson. We see in the rest of his career, he respected merit and and ability as he saw it, and William didn't have that. But being friends with a royal it was useful and, and did get him kind of projected his power, leapt him up a few stages. Um, there's a funny pattern of Nelson's journal entries or letters home which I think detail a kind of duality that, that maybe he, he kind of bought into this idea of being a self-made man as well. And that might be why we have entertained it as well for so long. 
Um, he details always how he was promoted or so-and-so appointed him because he and the Admiral saw eye to eye and, you know, great mutual respect. And I think we understand each other perfectly. And then we'll see in the Admiral's journals or, or you know, a letter from the same date saying, appointed young Nelson as per Suckling's request. And I think the interesting question here is why do we have this idea of his being from humble origins? Why, why, have, we, why have we held onto that? Because the evidence kind of quite quickly dismisses it. But we, so I think we have to have taken that and said, actually, I'd like him to be from humble origins. And it's a repeated pattern among folk heroes. Joan of Arc, Benjamin Franklin, Charles Dickens, Oprah Winfrey. The climb to prominence against the odds lends extra clout to their achievements. I think by, you know, by contrast, we can go, wow, that's incredible that Joan of Arc was a peasant girl and she couldn't read and she ended up kind of dictating the, the future of France. More specifically for the British, though, I think it's tied in with a lot of our angst about class. You know, there's now there's a, there's a kind of in, inverse snobbery that functions now, born of a kind of an awareness of how backwards and unfair our fairly recent history is and how, how backwards the whole class structure is that we now have to kind of scrape up some poverty for a figure to have virtue, to justify somebody's virtue. Uh, Jesus, you'll forgive me, Jesus is a kind of extreme representation of this dynamic. I'm not saying Jesus wasn't from humble origins. He, he absolutely was. Um, the historical Jesus or the, the biblical Jesus, definitely from humble origins. But that that it is his poverty, you know, there is virtue in that poverty. And that that, that that story wouldn't quite function the same if Jesus was born into a very well-to-do family. The Bible kind of talks at length about how, you know, money is not conducive to virtue. And actually, as we'll go into later, there is a lot of messianic imagery surrounding Nelson after his death. Nelson was very clearly a product of privilege, but that, for me, I don't think that necessarily lessens his qualities or his achievements, but it does show us something interestingly about, you know, about ourselves, about the way that we, we give ourselves permission to idolise people. But in any case, the other tendency we have around the, the, you know, the early life section of somebody's Wikipedia article is to retrospectively find significance. And this is one of the reasons why I kind of don't want to dwell too long on his personal life. You know, with Nelson, there have been lines of thought that his father was a parson, uh, which is, you know, where he got his sense of moral duty from. Or because his mother died when he was nine, he was always looking for affirmation. Um, and he was restless to be away from home and showing people that he was worthy. And I just think that's kind of silly, isn't it? Because stuff happens to us all the time. All sorts of stuff happens to all sorts of people. Lots of people's parents die when they're nine. But those people don't go and win the Battle of Trafalgar. So I just don't think it, I don't think it's really worthwhile dwelling upon. There's some psychoanalysis to be done, perhaps, but I don't think it's important. Nelson is in the service, the naval service, from the age of 12, as I mentioned. He entered in 1771. So at the start of our story, he's been in the Navy for, for, for over three decades, over three quarters of his life. He begins as a midshipman. I'll explain exactly what that is again um, next episode. But a midshipman really is, is a, just a, a very, very junior officer. And, and it was not atypical to enter the service at the age of 12. He has a pretty varied time in various ships as a midshipman in the Caribbean, in the Mediterranean, in the Indian Ocean. Uh, he works up to being a lieutenant. He's involved in some quite dashing stuff in the Caribbean. Uh, he suffers from a nasty tropical fever. He would have died, but he was taken in, you know, he's taken out of the naval hospital. He was put in the care of some freed slave women who applied local remedies. They doctored him back to health. And I'm not saying that to say that he's sort of a people's champion. But there is, 
I mean, it, there is a connection that we have with him, with the kind of the downtrodden and the everyday man and woman. But in any case, he has some adventures around the Caribbean. He is definitely in the mix with, with lots of different people. And that, that's, that's important. It's not atypical of, of, of the Navy. He's not exceptional for that. But, but it's interesting to know that about his early life, that he, being in the Navy, you are in the mix because you're living on a pretty limited box with pe- all sorts of people. People that he would usually be very socially distanced from in the kind of very class-segregated British society. He does have a lot of the romanticism of the sailor, and we can go, I mean, separate from Nelson, there is a deep part of our cultural imaginary surrounding this period about the romanticism of, of the sailor, you know, with a girl in every port. Nelson himself chases a girl in Quebec. Uh, he at one point has an affair with a, a woman called Adelaide Corellia, who's a Corsican opera singer. This is not unusual for sailors of this period, or I imagine perhaps sailors nowadays, but I think... I'm, I'm detailing this because I think Nelson embodies this image of the sailor and a, a romantic, dashing, sexual libertine is definitely a part of that myth. He is actually already married. He marries quite young. He marries um, a woman called Frances Nisbet. He marries her when she, you know, he's, in, he's in the Caribbean. She's the daughter of a, a local dignitary and he installs her in Norfolk uh, back, at, back at his home. And this marriage is interesting. It can be viewed quite cynically from, from the start. You know, Frances was a widow, uh, a very young widow, but but, it, but a widow with a young son. So she kind of needed somebody, it, you know, in, in, in that day and age, certainly. Um, and Nelson was in desperate want of a wife, to, not to be too bodily about it, but a lot of young, young naval officers did not have a lot of chance to mix with women, and he wanted a wife. And so they seemed to kind of supply something to each other. Now, on Nelson's romantic life, I straight away want to kind of deal with Lady Hamilton, Emma Hamilton. This is Nelson's definite most famous romantic attachment of his life. Emma Hamilton had been an artist model and a mistress of her eventual husband's cousin. So that's a little bit complicated, but she was cast off by this man. She was taken in by that cousin, a man called Sir William Hamilton, who was an elderly British diplomat in Naples, um, who eventually married her. And Emma is really interesting in herself. She's a a, a really interesting woman for this period. She is a friend and confidant of the Neapolitan Queen, who's uh, Maria Carolina, who's another interesting woman, pretty much running Naples by herself in the stead of her husband, King Ferdinand, who was busy enjoying, you know, all the things that kings like to distract themselves with. Emma was a bit of a sensation in Naples. As I said, she was an artist model. She was an actor and a singer. She became famous for her attitudes. That's in, you know, inverted commas, in which she struck classical poses. And I don't know what that says about, you know, the levels of contemporary entertainment, and maybe we can thank God for television. But in any case, Emma was, you know, would strike these poses from classical friezes or murals or frescoes. And, uh, you know, she would, that would cause a sensation. Everyone would gather around in the streets and look at her and arm and arm. She was a larger-than-life character. And she adds a kind of glamour to Nelson's life, which otherwise he doesn't actually have. You know, he becomes a real celebrity, but, but she's definitely the most glamorous thing in it. And Nelson gets involved with her when he's stationed in and around Naples and Palermo uh, before the Peace of Amiens uh, as a close friend of herself and her husband. And it's, quite, it's kind of unclear when it becomes a romantic relationship, but there's no, it's actually not as sordid as some people might think, or is it, I think it was eventually made out to be quite sweetly Sir William, her husband, who I get the sense perhaps married her as a benefactor, really, rather than as a husband. 
seems to kind of willingly to have allowed the relationship to, to blossom. This is summed up because he, yeah, he eventually died pretty much in both of their arms. And he actually left Nelson his favourite portrait of Emma in his will. I think there's a way of seeing this not in the cynical way of, you know, the old cuckold and the sordid extramarital relations. Lord Hamilton, I think, loved Emma. And I think he saw Nelson as her next benefactor and her way to carry on in society. And in an unselfish way, he kind of let that happen. There was a, there is a very cynical picture of this that got built up, and I think it got built up by in part the Victorians who come, you know, directly after Nelson, and they kind of get to decide how we view foundationally his his myth. They they were great historians, and they, as with so many other periods of history, kind of decide framed how we would see it. And Victorian morality didn't look too too kindly on that kind of thing. Um, one significant addition that Emma made to Nelson's public life was joining him on all sorts of public tours through England, through continental Europe. Uh, by the end of the 18th century, Nelson is already really an international celebrity. The composer Haydn puts music to some English verse, which was about the Battle of the Nile, which was one of Nelson's great victories, and Emma sings it to, to Haydn's accompaniment. So really high celebrity kind of circles that he's moving in and Emma is kind of facilitating that and in this light she is a sort of she's a kind of MC she's a kind of social magnifier for Nelson and she turned him into I think what we might recognize as a modern celebrity and that's to say that basically people cared about his life aside from his professional achievements people cared about him now an odd sort of angle that I came across when it comes to this relationship is the way that it has been set up as a narrative in opposition to Nelson's relationship with his wife. Like I've taken a lot, a lot, I've done a lot of reading and I've taken quite a lot of quotations from historian Andrew Lambert, who has written a fantastic book all about Nelson. However, I have to disagree with him on this one point, his treatment of Nelson's wife. He says of her, quote, Though Fanny had done nothing wrong, she was not a fit consort for a hero. The problem was that Fanny was not able to see this. End quote. And this just, it strikes me as such a bizarre way to say that she had been abandoned by her husband and left to fend for herself. I don't really judge Nelson for this, for being unfaithful. At the remove of 200 years, I don't think I'm qualified, and I don't think anyone is really, to comment on the vagaries of a romantic relationship. But it strikes me as bizarre, and perhaps endemic to the very idea of writing a biography, that we could see the world from somebody's point of view to such an extent that their wife, who they married and then abandoned, can be dubbed the problem. You know, maybe Nelson wasn't a fit consort for her. Um, I kind of bring that up, I think, because it does relate to our relationship to him as a hero. You know, that inevitably, if we build a statue of somebody, then we are viewing the world through their point of view, through their lens. They become the protagonist of well, whatever happens in that historical moment. And I think we just need to be careful of that. I think that this is just a really good example of becoming kind of blinded to the fact that that she didn't do this, you know, that she that, that, that she, she isn't a by she isn't a, a she isn't a, a support character in Nelson's life. She is the main character in her own life. And I think our understanding of any moment is going to be better if we kind of keep that foregrounded as a reality. In fact, I say this doesn't really reflect on Nelson. Nelson himself appears to have actually been pretty conflicted about the situation 
more conflicted than his biographers, uh, who tend to write off Fanny as a kind of annoyance. After having conceived his daughter, um, Horatia, with Emma Hamilton, whilst at sea, actually, he wrote a really emotionally strangled letter to Fanny. And um, he doesn't write a huge amount to her, or at least, you know, with the with the kind of trends of the time, he can't really voice a lot of this stuff as on the nose as we would we would want him to. But this is what he says. Quote, My health at times is better, but a quiet mind and to give consent is necessary for me. A very difficult thing for me to enjoy. I could say much, but it would only distress me and be useless. End quote. Just to pick out, I could say much, but it would only distress me and be useless. And I think that gives us a really clear portrait, or as clear a portrait as we can get from such a short sentence, of somebody who is really deeply conflicted about this whole thing and is struggling with it. And really, I'm gonna, I take Nelson's lead on that. I think um, he's struggling and he's conflicted about it and we can't really read very much further into it than that, especially as far as our relationship to him as a kind of uh, national hero goes. So having said all of this, having focused on his relationship for, I don't know, five or 10 minutes, ultimately, I don't think his relationship with Emma Hamilton was really anything special. I think in the light of a, a national myth, it, it isn't really significant, either to his merit or his demerit. He had a romantic relationship. He had an affair. So what? I do think it says quite a bit about the way we view heroic figures. Uh, we hold their personal conduct under a microscope. Uh, we hold them either to impossibly high standards or we let them get away with a huge amount of stuff, depending on what suits us and depending on, on what sort of narrative we want to construct around their person. And I think the only real aspect in which this can play into the way that we view Nelson is this idea of the libertine, sort of emancipated, cutting his own course character. And I think we like that about him. Now, as Nelson climbs ranks, basically hopping into bigger and bigger ships, because that's, that's kind of how it works, we can see his good reputation beginning to shine through. Um, his good reputation, his kind of uh, the regard he's held in by other officers, is a big part of his contemporary success and also of, of our, our vision of him now. When he leaves the Albemarle, which is one of his early commands, the entire crew volunteer to go with him to his next ship. And that's quite a big deal. You know, they, they, they've decided, they've stuck to him. And the loyalty that, that people show to him this being an early example of it, is very significant and is going to be significant in our story. Something that really shines through Nelson's early career, as well as this uh, sense of, of good regard, really, from, from everyone he serves with, pretty much, is ambition. He was undeniably monstrously ambitious. We saw it to some extent um, in the relationship that he cultivated with Prince William, that he, he was willing to do things to climb the ladder. The difficult dynamic is that for Nelson and most other naval officers, advancement is really dependent upon, in the big picture, the nation being at war, and in the smaller picture of Nelson being involved in violent, decisive actions. And that idea of violent, decisive actions is, is really what is going to drive Nelson to approach things in a different way um, and to, to his greatest successes. In his own words, quote, expedition ought to be the universal word and deed, end quote. That decisiveness and speed is what he sees as the most important thing. And that, I think, both is, in a sense, uh, his philosophy of how to win a naval engagement, and we'll get onto that. But in this instance, it's his philosophy of, of how to be successful in life, of how to, how to get a promotion, how to climb the ladder. 
Nelson repeatedly sort of writes his own eulogy when he is anticipating action. Quote, A brave man dies but once, a coward all his life long. We cannot escape death, and should it happen, recollect that it is the will of him in whose hands are the issues of life and death. As to my health, it were never better. End quote. Uh, another time, quote, Life with disgrace is dreadful. A glorious death is to be envied, and if anything happens to me, recollect death is a debt we must all pay, and whether now or in the few years hence can be of little consequence. End quote. And I think that this attitude, you know, this is really in his diary entries, usually on the eve of battle. This attitude appears to be, I will go into whatever fight I'm going into with, with absolutely everything, with absolutely no regard for my own safety. And in fact, this is another theme kind of that, that is, is foreshadowed and we'll go into more later. But he's kind of saying, I would rather die gloriously. My, you know, he's, he's writing his own memory. And his own glory, his own his own good memory and his own reputation seems to be the absolutely operative thing. We can see this as a kind of attitude of do or die at every single encounter. And he just happens to, to pull it off, you know, every time, except for the last. And you have to wonder if his sailors felt the same and if indeed the officers under him felt the same. Historian Andrew Lambert, who I just had a go at, but who is a... a a very good historian on Nelson, uh, puts it this way, quote, his prospects were almost entirely dependent on further war, end quote. I think that's it, really, that Nelson's success is totally tied to action um, and to war, the war continuing. And, you know, there, there's a period of peace in early in his career and, and there's this genuine fear that he's going to miss the action, that he's going to miss out and his career's not going to go anywhere and, and that's it. And I think to our modern sensibilities, this is really hard to reconcile with him as a noble figure in any context. Because, you know, the last time we saw this attitude was probably the beginning of the First World War. I think it died really in the First World War. This idea of, you know, we're going to, it's going to be over by Christmas and we need to be there, otherwise we're going to miss out. Nelson is incredibly eager to fight. And this is a totally double-edged sword in terms of how we view him and is tangled up in both an, a positive and a negative picture that we can begin to form. In his mythologized form, Nelson is the fearless man of action. He's leaping into the mouth of danger. And and in the best case, and I think in the way that we remember him, and to some extent in the way that Nelson's column and his statue staring off into the middle distance and thinking of England, he wants to do that because of England. You know, he wants to do it because it's his duty. He wants to do it for some higher flown purpose. But the opposite way to see this, and I think arguably the more realistic way to see this is that he's simply incentivized by the by the service that he lives in that he works in which quite literally has to reward you know there's 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 only there's a limited number of ships and there's a number of captains who want to or commanders even who want to become captains of them who want to be to be boosted up that ladder and there's a limited number of people that can do it so you can diligently get on with your job for as long as you like ultimately the admiralty is much more likely to pick out somebody who has a really exciting decisive clash and there's, I mean, there's even reports of, you know, people saying things like, make sure the, the, the numbers are good. And by that, maybe they mean the numbers of dead are good. Because the Admiralty, you know, it looks good if you've got a good few dead, because it look, makes it look like a real action. And therefore, the opposite way to see it is that, is that he's just incentivized to generate action. He is incentivized to place himself, but also his ship and his men, 
in horribly violent and dangerous situations for his own advancement. Maybe a little higher flown for the glorious memory of his death, but that's kind of equally selfish. And, you know, at the time, maybe these were just the carrots and sticks that society used to create great leaders, to achieve great victories. And they did, you know, they, they, they created in Nelson somebody who was capable of going and winning a great battle and decisively marking a turning point in a war. But is this admirable? I don't think we can blame Nelson for seeking advancement in his profession. I just want you to keep in mind that his keenness for violence is something that we're very capable of seeing as exciting or seeing as heroic but that there are definitely other factors operating upon it. And I, I just want you to ask yourself, perhaps, as we go forward with this story, how you would feel if you were on that ship. Because you can't you say, sorry, I'm out, I'm leaving the ship. You're on the ship and you're going wherever it's going. And if that's towards a load of cannons, then that's where you're going and you don't really have a choice. I just want you to, to think, would I be totally all right with this? When I'm aware, it's mostly Nelson that's going to benefit from it. One aspect of, of Nelson's character linked to this urgency for action comes out early in his career. And morality, ethics aside, it's clearly a very powerful personal quality. He is always doing things quickly. He is offered, when he's, when he's a kind of very junior post-captain, which means he's in charge of a proper, a proper battleship, he is offered a 64-gun ship now or a bigger 74-gun ship later. He, he always takes the ship that is there. The, one of his officers simply noted, quote, we always seem to be sailing very fast, end quote. And I think this is, this is a genuine, it's almost like a kind of, uh, you know, business tricks from Nelson kind of thing, that for good leadership and these impressive people, I think you would be surprised at how many of them have this quality. Caesar, for example, is, is, is famous for just do, writing all the time and doing things all the time. Whenever he's traveling, anything, he's always doing things. And the speed at which he does stuff actually often catches his, his enemies off guard. Get a lot, a lot done in this life if you do it all very quickly. Uh, Nelson's attitude to honor and duty is one of the really key elements of his myth that came up a lot in the, um, in the kind of survey that I talked about right at the start of this episode. And it seems a bit of a, it's a, bit of a contradiction, I think. There's a, there's a contradiction right at the heart of it that we need to be aware of. Early in his career, one episode really exemplifies this. Whilst in the Caribbean, Nelson's job, quite a young, a, a young officer in the Caribbean, on, on his way up, but by no means he's not at the top of the, of the chain of command in the Caribbean. Nelson's job is to enforce some trade regulations, uh, which is what the Navy is doing, spending a lot of its time doing. I was talking about the Royal Navy as a kind of the, the maintainer of this maritime empire, and regulating trade stuff is kind of the bread and butter of, of Navy activity. And he's doing this in, in the Caribbean amongst these, these colonial possessions. And his job is basically to stop the newly minted United States of America from trading directly with British colonial possessions. The USA has to trade with Britain, and then Britain will trade with its colonies. It's kind of a, a way of rigging the economy in, in the empire's favor. And he realizes that his superior officer in the Navy and a civil official in, um, in, in, in one of the Caribbean islands are allowing it to go on, allowing this trade to go on, despite it not being, you know, being against the law. Um, and he makes it his business to zealously, perhaps kind of, kind of pedantically enforce these trade regu regulations, what was called the Navigation Act, simply because they're the rules. And he, he eventually writes back to the Admiralty and kind of tells on them. 
and Andrew Lambert puts it, it like this, quote, It reduced Hughes and Shirley, Nelson's superiors, to splenetic rage, a condition exacerbated by the realisation that the arrogant puppy, Nelson, was perfectly correct, end quote. And I get this image of Nelson as the, this virtuous kind of golden boy doggedly pursuing what is right as according to the law. Um, and it could be argued they're pretty arbitrary rules. His superiors were flouting them in order to, to more cheaply supply the islands um, and the ships there. They were probably making some money on the side, but it wasn't a totally self-serving thing that they were doing. So here he's kind of rigorously, pedantically enforcing these laws. And that's what he sees as duty, you know, and that's how he sells it. He says, I'm, you know, I'm doing my duty. On the other hand, though, whilst he's doing this, Nelson continues to pay his brother after he has left the service of his ship. Um, the Boreas was his ship at this point, um, for nearly two years. So his brother, you know, had been an officer on the ship and had gone off somewhere else. And Nelson had just kept him on the books. The Nelson, you know, the captain's job was an administrator to some extent of his ship. And, and they were pretty free to take advantage of this, really. They had a pretty open hand by inventing people on the payroll. And Nelson did, well, sort of invent that his brother was still there and paid him for two years. So this relationship with duty and the rules is definitely something that, that is, is kind of problematic. And we need to look at it a bit closer because there's a vision of duty where it's duty to what the rules are. And then there's a vision of duty or to, 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 to what the rules should be or what is right in a more objective sense. And Nelson toys with both of those. By the beginning of our, of our story in 1805, Nelson has already suffered his two defining injuries. And these two definitely popped up in the survey that I briefly conducted. The loss of an arm and the loss of the sight in his right eye. Uh, he didn't actually lose his eye. That was something that quite a lot of people uh, were under the impression had happened. Um, but he lost the sight in it after some stones and some grit from a, a near miss from a cannonball flew into his eye at the siege of Calvi, which is on Corsica. Uh, he lost the arm after a failed attack on Tenerife, which was pretty disastrous, actually. Um, his right arm was smashed by a, a musket ball. And I say smashed because these are like half an inch to three quarters of an inch in diameter musket balls. This is something about the warfare of this period that, that will definitely come up in the, the episode when we actually get to the battle, but the, the kind of physics of it is, is really brutal. So a musket ball is more like a kind of small cannonball. It's a heavy half to three quarter of an inch of lead that shatters his arm. And this is when his stepson, I mentioned Fanny, his wife, had a, had a son already. When he married her, his stepson, Josiah, who he had, by all accounts, a really good relationship with, um, saves his life. He's serving on his ship with him, and he improvises a, a tourniquet and saves him. And this is immortalised, actually, in a, in a painting. Um, the attack fails, his, this attack on Tenerife. Uh, Nelson has the arm amputated. Um, and within half an hour, he is back at work. There's actually a letter um, to the Spanish, who were in port at Tenerife, that he signed an hour after the amputation with his left hand so it's the first you know the first we presume the first thing he ever wrote with his left hand it's this scrawled signature only having one arm was a repeated answer to my survey so it should be examined a little because i think it it plays into the myth and and in fact this immediate return to work at tenerife you know an, an hour after he's he's had his arm chopped off i think is linked to why we find it significant after the Battle at Tenerife, he wrote letters to um, Jervis, who was one of the, the foremost admirals. He was the, the first Lord of the Admiralty at one point and, and one of Nelson's kind of mentors. Um, and to his wife, he wrote a letter as well. And he, he paraphrases a psalm. He says, quote, I am become a burthen to my friends and useless to my country. 
When I leave your command, I become dead to the world. I go hence and I'm no more seen, end quote. Um, and it's in this letter that he's kind of, he takes full responsibility for his failure, for the failed operation. He creates this precedent which will follow him throughout his career by which his officers and his men in future will will take risks. They will be they will not be afraid to be fallible because he will take the blame whenever anything fails. He's kind of saying you go and you do you do what you think is best and if it goes wrong I'm not going to dump you in it. In any case he closes the the letter to his wife, quote, "You will excuse my scrawl considering it is my first attempt." end quote. Which is I think just a quite a a human touch, I suppose. This lost arm this 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 lost arm in 1797 is already a part of his public image and the the story of Josiah's quick rescue of his stepfather is used to cover up actually some of the grimmer as- aspects of the failure of that attack on Tenerife and i find myself kind of endeared to him i think by this um, i'm sure it's a subconscious part of our image of him by the way he reacts to his disability and it's a serious disability for you know for anyone to lose an arm, it's a, it's a traumatic thing to happen. But for a naval officer to not be able to perceive depth, you know, missing an eye and not being able to climb because you've only got one arm is like a, is a real issue. And it's not that he doesn't behave as though he has a disability. There are different responses that you can make to, to, to things that are going to hold you back. Franklin D. Roosevelt is, takes the opposite tack. He kind of bluffs out the fact that he's in a wheelchair. We kind of forget that he's in a wheelchair because he just doesn't let it begin to enter our minds but Nelson doesn't do that we we might on a kind of obvious level want to think oh he, he never let the fact he didn't have an arm hold him back good for him but Nelson quite unabashedly seemed to recognize his disability and I think it's kind of quite a modern approach to it actually that he, he recognizes it and he allows people to help him with it. it it isn't a stigmatized aspect of his persona or his professional life it wasn't a display of weakness and he didn't feel it to display it to be a display of weakness to ask for help um, he surrounded himself with other officers who could see it said that hardy who was his um his flag captain at trafalgar was notable for having very good eyesight and at dinner he would often make people feel special by asking them to cut him a slice of beef or, or a slice of bread or something so he never tried to hide his empty sleeve he actually, you know, you'll see this. This is part, part it's on Nelson's column, but it's also part of the numerous portraits we have of him. That he doesn't wear his usual coats, get them tied up or get them kind of stitched up, get it, get it kind of hidden. He, he pins the empty sleeve across his chest. Uh, when he was being knighted, the king sort of rudely commented on his absent arm. And Nelson responded with quite good humour. He introduced Berry, who was his flag captain at the time, as his right hand. Ultimately, the loss of his arm may actually have been oddly beneficial to his career. It came at a time when he was kind of at the top of the serving action captain rank, and he could stay there and continue to fight ship actions himself. But what the what the loss of his arm did made him it made him unsuitable to be in the thick of it as a ship commander or even as a as a small squadron commander he wouldn't be leading any boarding actions or anything so instead he was seen by the admiralty as a, a fleet leading admiral he was needed now for his brain for his instincts and that's you know as i said i mentioned the screenplay or the the movie of this and that's definitely in the movie the kind of character forming moment of deep depression because he does sink into a real depression when he loses his arm particularly but of a kind of 
uh, redemption of that moment, finding finding the positive and finding his own strength in it. Um, in 1805, he's already had three really defining actions. I keep on saying he's a celebrity, and he really is at this point. He is a he's a national celebrity, and he's already really seen as the saviour of Britain in many senses. He's had these three defining actions, the Battle of Cape St. Vincent, the Battle of the Nile, and the Battle of Copenhagen. And I'll very quickly uh, talk you through those, because they're interesting. The Battle of Cape St. Vincent first happens in 1797, and Nelson is a, uh, one, a, a captain under Jervis, who I mentioned before. And he uses his initiative. He does one of these these classic, what become classic Nelson sort of bits of insubordination. He uses his initiative. He 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 just just decides to go his own way and aggressively act um, to pull off a significant turn. He pulled out of the the line of battle and he aggressively moved towards the Spanish fleet. He winds up actually attacking and boarding. And boarding, just for those of you who don't know, it means essentially rather than staying at a distance and just blowing each other up with cannons, it means actually pulling up next to another ship, lashing yourself to it, throwing uh, grappling hooks and stuff, pulling yourself together and all of your sailors rushing on with pistols and cutlasses and axes and whatever, taking that ship. Um, So he boards the San Nicolas, which is roughly the same size as his own ship, and what he doesn't realise at the time is that St Nicholas has become entangled with another Spanish ship on the other side, the San Joseph. And he is forced by that because he's now, they're all three ships kind of tied together. Because there's so much, you know, as I said, 31 miles of rope on some of these big ships. Properly tangled up. So he gets onto the San Nicholas and just when he manages to take the San Nicholas, he is forced to board the San Joseph, which is the next one over, which is bigger. Um, significantly bigger. So much so that he needs to get a leg up famously from um, from one of his sailors give him a leg up to be the first over the gunnels into the into the San Joseph. He personally leads both attacks. It's maybe the only time that, that this kind of double boarding has happened. So that's really, you know, that, that's a kind of defining moment. That's one of the, the, the first defining moments for his career. And the, the, the important thing to know about this, and as I said, he kind of was, was in, the, in the habit of taking blame if, if things went badly, is that he would have been court-martialed if he was unsuccessful. He would have been put in front of a military tribunal because each captain had a huge degree of room to use their own discretion in command. But the, the perhaps rather unfair reversal of that was that then if, if the captain does something wrong, if something goes wrong, then the captain becomes personally liable. It's undeniably brave what he did, but at this point, this side of Nelson, this... Um, this ambitious self-publicist also comes out. Jervis doesn't publicly give Nelson a personal mention in his dispatch back to the Admiralty. He just, you know, gives an outline of the action and he says that everyone fought very well. And Nelson wants a personal mention. And Nelson just kind of accidentally ends up giving an interview to um, this guy called Colonel Drinkwater, who was who was quite famous for already being a bit of a gossip and have, having made reports being a bit of a, a reporter of the war. And he was with the fleet and having written an account of the siege of Gibraltar. And Nelson, you know, doesn't. it's not an official interview. He just happens to act, oh, wait, is that you, Colonel Drinkwater? Yeah, I'd just love to tell you what I just did in this battle. And he outlines it. And then, predictably, Drinkwater publishes this, um, an account of St. Vincent with Nelson all over it. So Nelson's kind of cornered the market in, in the, in the, the publicity of it. Um, Nelson also writes an account of the battle to Locker, who is, well, he's actually the first officer that Nelson served under, but he's basically Nelson's kind of agent back in London. And he writes this account in the first person. Again, I think 
almost playing it off as like, oh, no, I just want to tell my good friend Locker how it how it all happened. But he writes it in the first person and then he kind of lamely adds a note on the end saying, oh, by the way, if you're going to publish this, then please, you know, change it to the second person. It would just be too much if everyone knew what it was from my point of view. And Locker, you know, reads between the lines and publishes it unedited. And for all of this, Nelson is made a rear admiral and a knight of the bath, which is, is his first kind of big honorary recognition. This, this self-publicity isn't why we remember him, and it's not why he's got a column in, in Trafalgar Square. However, it is how he got himself into, into the position to do things that we remember him for. Uh, Andrew Lambert again sums this up beautifully. Quote, Few men were so able with either the sword or the pen, and none with both. End quote. So, I mean, and, and again, he's a bit like Caesar here. For those of you who know your, your Julius Caesar, Caesar went through Gaul and, and literally wrote, he wrote the story of it from his own point, of, well, actually third person. So he kind of writes the history as he's going along. And it's this kind of ability to obviously be an astounding leader, but then also to, to kind of make sure everybody knows about it as well. Anyway, moving on to the Nile. The Nile's in 1798, so just a year later. This is really his crowning achievement up until this point, the Battle of the Nile. And at this point, the Battle of the Nile is probably the biggest ever naval battle between ships of this kind. It takes place as Nelson is attempting to stop the French from landing in Egypt, uh, which is a, a threat to India, actually. The, 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 the French were landing in Egypt, and they could well have gone and gone through Afghanistan and and into India. He actually fails to stop them landing and is really hard on himself for this, but he engages with their fleet and he really decisively destroys it. And actually that really is, you know, the French are going to be in Egypt for a long time after that, but this scuppers their, their designs. As they're now there without support, they're cut off and it's not going to end well for them. He decisively destroys this. He captures or sinks all but two of the French ships in this engagement. Again, if we look at this as, as, as screenwriters, just as the screenwriters would desire, two ships escape, and one is commanded by the French Admiral Villeneuve. And you need to remember that name because he has a, a date with destiny with Nelson. This kind of, as I said, stops the French success in Egypt, but it also reverses the naval situation in the Mediterranean. It makes the British the dominant power there. There are two episodes to mention at the Nile that, that cast some light on Nelson. The decisive moment of the battle is when the French flagship, um, L'Orient, explodes. Um, these ships, you know, as I say, they've got anywhere between 70 to over 100 cannon on board, which can fire two or three times every five minutes. And if you're going to keep that many cannon going over a long engagement, you need a huge amount of gunpowder. So these, these ships are kind of floating powder magazines, and they are always in danger of, of exploding. Um, and that's the most catastrophic thing that can happen on a ship. Everyone was terrified of fire for that reason. And the Lorient explodes spectacularly. And, and, and all accounts of this moment say that the battle stopped for several minutes as in a kind of stunned silence, as this huge cloud of smoke settles over everything. And Nelson actually immediately sends out boats to rescue the French survivors. So this, I know, this, this should be weighed in our reckoning of Nelson as he is accused of bloodthirstiness and I've kind of already uh, sort of tacitly accused him of, of, of seeking out danger and seeking out action but there, there is that important uh, sort of humanitarian side to him as well. And the second is, is a defining element of his character. During the battle he gets hit um, in the head with a piece of shrapnel. 
perhaps to his credit, he always seems to receive some kind of serious injury or other during every single battle. And when he receives this wound in a reprieve that will become familiar to us, says, quote, I am killed, remember me to my wife, end quote. And he seems constantly to be writing, you know, his own epitaph. As I said before, he is, he is constantly speaking his last words. And of course, these weren't his last words. You know, they would be improved upon, definitely, because I am killed, remember to me to my wife is a, is a little lame, perhaps. And he was taken down to the surgeon and he was stitched up. But it really does re- reveal this, uh, not necessarily the most noble aspect of his character, um, this repeated strain in Nelson's life of almost to be seeking death. He seemed to be so stressed about the preoccupied about how he will be remembered, about whether or not he will have done enough for his country. And, and he kind of wants to be released in a glorious moment that will secure his reputation beyond reproach, sort of like um, Hamlet killing Claudius in the middle of prayer. Well, if I just if I die now, then nobody can say anything against me. And he is he's very he's, he's very tied up with how people view him, as we'll see. Good. And finally, of these three actions, we have Copenhagen in 1801. This is a much less glorious battle than the other. It is much less straightforward. This was an attack on the neutral Danish fleet after a kind of a breakdown in diplomacy. But here, Nelson is under the command of a senior, um, a senior admiral, uh, Sir Hyde Parker, who comes out of it all pretty badly, really. The key to this battle and the, the kind of difficulty of it is, that it is to navigate into a really small patch of deep water just outside Copenhagen Harbour called the King's Deep. And once this has been achieved, which it is, and the battle is ongoing, Hyde Parker inexplicably gives a command to disengage. And as I, when, when I say he gives the command, he's running up flags up to the top of his mast because, as I said, that's the only way to, to really communicate, especially in the heat of battle. And Nelson sees this. And it's, in his eyes, not only cowardly, but it's dangerous. Because the fleet is has wormed its way into this deep patch of water from which it can make contact with the Danish fleet. And if it tries to get out again, it will be destroyed in trying to disengage itself. So by not following the order, which Nelson doesn't, and indeed not relaying that message to the rest of his squadron, he continues the battle. And he wins it. A little tidbit here, probably misattributed, but this is an interesting one. We get supposedly the origin of the phrase to turn a blind eye. Um, Nelson was signalled by, by, by Sir Hyde Parker to pull off the attack, and Nelson is said to have put his telescope to his blind eye to look at the signal and said, I have a right to be blind sometimes, which um, sounds a li- is perhaps a little pat to be real. But again, we, we see the, the kind of high esteem that captains held Nelson in because the rest of his squadron doesn't go over his head and, and follow Sir Hyde Parker, the rest of his squadron stays in contact. And in fact, one of his, his best frigate captains, a man called Ryu, does receive the command to withdraw and, and does feel he has to follow it. And he remarks, what will Nelson think of us? And then is directly killed by a direct hit from a cannonball, which kind of indicates Nelson's appraisal of the, of the situation that is dangerous. After the battle, the British kind of negotiating Danish neutrality they're doing this, admittedly, whilst they have seven bomb, what are called bomb catches or bomb vessels. These are really interesting because they are another kind of weird sci-fi end of an era invention. They're these, they, they look very awkward kind of ships because they only have a mast right at the back and sometimes a small one right at the front. And that's to make space in the middle for the one gun on the whole ship, which is an enormous mortar, which will fire in a kind of parabolic trajectory. It could fire a 200-pound shell over two miles and in that sense to be honest it looks much more like 
you know, what we would think of as a modern battleship with fewer guns, but really big destructive ones. And whilst these negotiations are ongoing, the bomb catches are sat there well in range of the entirety of the rest of Copenhagen. So the Danish are a bit over a, over a barrel while they're having these negotiations. But while these negotiations are ongoing, Nelson orders a new set of crockery uh, from the Royal Copenhagen Porcelain Works, which is very, I think, very genteel. An odd bit of fallout from the Battle of Copenhagen, which gives us an insight into Nelson's character and some of the ideas and and kind of incentives that form our, our ideas of heroes, and indeed who ends up being put on, on statues and up on columns, is that, well, after any significant engagement, it was traditional for all of the captains involved to be presented with gold medals commemorating the event by the king, kind of bespoke gold medals. However, after Copenhagen, this didn't happen. It didn't happen because the engagement had been against a kind of a neutral country and there was ongoing diplomatic relations and and talks with the Danish and it basically wouldn't have been seen as very proper to issue a medal commemorating an action and kind of rubbing it in their faces. And Nelson was outraged by this. You know, he, he he was furious and he refused to wear his other medals from the Battle of Cape St Vincent and the Nile until this wrong was righted. And Lambert's take on this is, quote, as this refusal shows, his vanity never overrode his commitment to his followers, end quote, which is a flattering way of viewing it. He's saying he was, you know, he was sticking up for his captains and making sure they got the recognition they deserved. Alternatively, the first thing that occurred to me is that Nelson is outraged on his own behalf, that he wants his achievement recognised because... Frankly, that's what he does for the whole of the rest of his career. He is desperate, desperate for people to always, and actually gets very slightly, perhaps slightly childishly piqued when people don't, he feels he hasn't been recognised. In either case, the fact that this was taken so seriously, that, that Nelson would take this so seriously, shows us something about the incentives that were working on these people. The disincentives, to my mind, of being a naval captain of this time are massive, are just huge. It's very expensive. It's very unfair, the the promotion system and so forth. It's incredibly unpredictable. It's not particularly profitable unless you're quite lucky. You may well die. You'll never see your family. You have to live in discomfort. So why would you do it? And I think this recognition, this idea of recognition from your country and the importance that's attributed to it, maybe is the missing piece that kind of fills in that jigsaw puzzle. I think it displays this kind of idea of, of exceptionalism that some people are just great and they need to be recognised, that people have done something exceptional. And I think that's re- reflected in that period and really right up until the modern day in exceptionalism in, in, on a national level for us, that there's a sense of the country, that our country is, is for su- somehow better and the people in it are capable of exceptional things. We are the best and we must be celebrated. And on an individual level, you know, that's here are these, these superhuman Britons and we have to recognise them for their achievements. And I think the, the, the statue in Trafalgar Square is, is sort of the end result of this, or, or any, any number of statues. You know, we've got them of all sorts of people, and I don't think it's any coincidence that the vast majority of those are men in military uniforms, because, because the disincentive to be that, I think, is enormous, rationally speaking. And therefore, the incentive has to be something which which on the face of it, I mean, for us now, I think, looks, looks disproportionate and looks like, well, is there not something better for us to celebrate than people who, who go and kill other people? And I think that's because, yeah, as I said, that, that, that it's, it's perhaps to make up for a shortfall in, in the reasons why you might bother. Anyway, that's just my, my, my two cents. It's worth mentioning that Nelson 
really stood on the shoulders of some giants. I've talked a lot about the, the you know, the, the, the great things he did um, and the significant victories he won and so forth. But I think just to get it out of the way now, he was standing on the shoulders of giants in terms of his achievements. He learned seamanship from Locker, who's that first admiral that he, uh, the first captain that he, he served under that I mentioned. He learned his kind of strategic, bold strategic outlook from Hood, his logistical thoroughness from Jervis. These are some of the best officers he served under. And he was by no means new in, in really a lot of the things he did. He just kind of combined them all together and was the most successful in executing them. I think most strongly he gains from Jervis um, an approach to command that valued identifying able officers, you know, to trusting officers to make good decisions. He learns this because Jervis does this. Jervis treats him that way as a junior officer. Jervis, when sending Nelson on a dangerous mission to rescue the garrison of Elba, said, quote, Having experienced the most important effects from your enterprise and ability upon various occasions, since I have had the honour to command the Mediterranean, I leave entirely to your judgment the time and manner of carrying this critical service into execution. End quote. And we will we will see Nelson's own orders to his own captains at Trafalgar are almost word for word the same as that. And I think that's a very good quality. It significantly inherits a fleet in the Mediterranean that has been reformed and restructured to to massively increase its effectiveness. Jervis has instituted loads of reforms. He's made sure supplies, shipyards are efficient. He's he significantly increased the kind of rigour with which uh, duty was carried out. He created an atmosphere where officers who were kind of half-arsing it took early retirement. He made a kind of a hostile atmosphere for them so that junior commanders could come up who, like Nelson, who were kind of hungry for action and to do their absolute best. And Nelson inherited all of this. He inherited all of these, this machine that was ready to go. And as far as, you know, our memory of Nelson goes, I mention this really because it's a trend that pops up often in history. Alexander the Great is, is probably the most obvious example of this. He, was, he literally took the throne from his father, Philip II. Philip II dies kind of unexpectedly or suddenly, and he has spent you know, the last decade preparing an incredible army which is primed to invade Turkey. It's purpose-built to invade Turkey. Hello, Peter here, editing the episode. I've made loads of historical gaffes probably already in this episode, but I had to pick up this one. Alexander the Great didn't invade Turkey, he invaded Persia. Well, he sort of invaded the place that we now call Turkey, and then loads of other places. But I just needed to pick this one up. So when I say Turkey, I mean Persia. And Alexander inherits the throne, and he uses it to invade Turkey. Persia. So is Alexander really the great one there? We get, we get kind of the reverse of this, you know, a, a negative example of this with someone like Hitler. You know, it can be argued that Germany was ripe for what Hitler made it, that Hitler wasn't all that significant as compared to all of the trends and forces that were operating on Germany at the time. We, there's a big debate, the great man approach, which is quite an old-fashioned approach to history, that, that individuals are important and that they, they drag history behind them. And there's the trends and forces approach, which is to say that much broader societal economic trends push changes in history and that, and that people end up at the front of them and, and sort of surf those waves. We won't have that debate right now. But as far as Nelson is concerned, I think it's worth noting that he is just, he is the beneficiary of, of a, an, an age of kind of perfection of this naval machine. And that on a more, on a more abstract level, he is maybe just the focal point or the totem around which a much broader romanticization of the golden age of sail has come to, to crystallize. But 
the question that we will begin to answer in the next episode is how did this slender, slightly funny-looking, short, wounded celebrity admiral of his day become, in the words of Lord Byron, Britannia's god of war? Thank you very much for listening to this first series of Pedestals. This podcast is totally independent. I make it in my free time. So if you'd like to support, then please head over to my Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash pedestals. Covering expenses of books and coffee and so forth would be a brilliant start. But the more support I get from you guys, the more time I can justify reading books and blathering into my microphone and making episodes. If you've got any questions at all or you want to point out any glaring errors and I, I will try to make corrections um, or if you just want to get in touch you can reach me on pedestalspodcast at gmail.com uh, links to all of this uh, are going to be in the episode description this podcast is written presented and edited by me peter dewhurst a massive thank you goes out to uh, Fiona Wilson and to Brendan O'Rourke for their work on the logo, cover, illustration, whatever it's called. Uh, thanks also to all of the proper historians whose work I have cannibalised uh, and scavenged from. A uh, full list of sources is in the episode description. See you next time.